You're listening to Michael Pearl teach the Word of God, a production of No Greater Joy Ministries Incorporated. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can write to us at No Greater Joy Ministries, 1000 Pearl Road, Pleasantville, Tennessee, 37033. Or you can visit us at our website, which is nogreaterjoy.org. All right. The greatest sins of youth. We're going to cover two. The first one is, what do you think the first greatest sin of youth is? Well, you can you say sexual impurity. No. Huh? Is it pride? No. You've been reading my notes. You work with kids a long time. The greatest sins of youth, the first one is laziness. That's the greatest sin. Now, I can't tell you how many adults' lives I've seen ruined because of laziness. I can't tell you how many people I've seen get saved and go back to the devil for one reason. They were lazy. Just lazy. Proverbs 10, 4, and 5 says, He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. How many parents are ashamed of their children because they're lazy? Now, it's your fault, parents. Now, let me, let me make this clear. When you get 12, 13 years old, if you stay lazy, it's your fault. But parents, it's your fault they got that way to begin with. Now, I've had adults say, well, I'm lazy because my daddy made me lazy. That's true. That's absolutely true. But that doesn't change the fact that you are going to give an account to God for whether or not you stay lazy or whether or not you become diligent. See, God didn't make us to where we're victims and slaves to our heredity or to our environment are to the way we were raised. Amen. Granted, all of those things come to play to make us who and what we are. But that's not the final bottom line. That's just the starting position. The way you were raised, your heredity, your environment, that's just the starting position. God comes into play in that thing, and He gives us wisdom, strength, and discernment to make ourselves new by the power of the Spirit of God. That's your duty to do that. Laziness. Notice what it said here. He said, He that deals with slack hand, a diligent maketh rich, but he that, he that gathereth in summer is a wise son. A lot of people scoff at people who have money, and they, they're poor. They don't have money. Let me tell you something. One advantage of a rich person is he has to give and share with other people. A poor man doesn't. And I've often found this. Many people live in a state of poverty not because of spiritual reasons, not because they're not greedy, not because they don't seek the world like other people do. They live in a state of poverty because they're lazy. And that's why. Description of laziness. Proverbs twenty-four thirty-three through 34. Yet a little sleep 
a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. So he said a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands that not occupied to sleep. Your poverty will come like one that traveleth. Traveling makes you poor? It sure does. Have you ever noticed people who just travel from one place to another and never settle down are always very, very poor? Now, some people brag about that and say, well, I, I, don't, I don't have any worldly possessions. You don't have anything to give anybody either. Proverbs 23, 21, For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe the man with drags. He says, drunkard and glutton, he puts them together. In other words, a glutton is like a drunkard. Both of them are given over to the flesh. Now, let me tell you, you don't have to be fat to be a glutton. You can be skinny and have worms and be a glutton, just be feeding a whole host of worms. You know? You can, you can smoke cigarettes and be killing your body while you're gluttonous in the way you eat, but you don't get fat because the cigarettes are killing you while you're putting that food in there. You can be eating the wrong kinds of food and destroying your arteries and your heart and everything else and be a glutton, a lazy glutton, who hadn't got the courage to sit up and fix something decent to eat, and you're a glutton. Glutton and drunkenness are similar, and it all comes out of laziness. You watch, anytime you see a big, fat, lazy, big, fat slob He's lazy. We ran a uh, missions conference recently, and they put me on a panel. And they asked, what is the one thing that would keep you from, or several things that would keep you from supporting a missionary when they come around and they're seeking support? What is it that would turn you off? I said, I will not support a fat missionary. Now, just about everybody on the panel with me was fat. Some of them were obese, you know. But I, I, they asked me, didn't they? And it's the facts. I will not support a fat missionary. I can't hardly listen to a fat preacher. I got off a plane about a year and a half ago to preach somewhere, and the folks looked at me, and they, oh. and they said, oh, we were so afraid you'd be fat. That's what they said to me. They said, our people wouldn't listen to anybody fat. That's what they told me. Boy, I went the whole week with sucked in, making little shallow breaths like this, man. I had two belts, wore both of them, one on them under my shirt. <laughs> Hardly ate anything at all, man. Ate like a seven-day Adventist the whole week. But I left off the peanuts and the cashews. Proverbs nineteen fifteen. he says, Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep. Then Proverbs 19, 24 said, A slothful man hideth his hand in his bosom. He'll not so much as bring it out to his mouth again. That's, he's got his head off there, hasn't he? Proverbs 21, 25, The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. As the door turneth upon his hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. <laughs> Pretty picturesque, isn't it? Proverbs twenty six fifteen, a, The slothful 
hideth his hand in his bosom, it grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. And that guy's gotten so lazy he can't even hardly stand to feed himself. I mean, just, just, just lazy. Now, folks, I go to these seminars, and I see people come in with this string of little fat, waddling kids. They look like ducks right before New Year's or Thanksgiving, I mean, you know. They just come waddling in, big, big, fat, blobby kids, you know. And you see the fat hanging off their jaws like this. And they sit down there, pretty soon they start pulling on Mama like this, and she pulls a sucker out and hands it to one of them. Or pulls out this little peanut butter cracker stuff, and little kid sitting there munching. And when when you start when you start a kid off overfeeding him, when you start off feeding him the wrong foods when he's a year old, two years old, three years old, when you make that little girl, little boy fat when they're five and six and seven, they're going to have trouble with fat the rest of their life. They may get skinny when they're 10 or 11 and stay that way, but when they get about 21 or 22, they'll start getting fat again. You produce more fat cells by making them fat. Do you know that? Do you know you produce extra fat cells by being fat when you're young? So that when you get older, it's easier to retain that fat. You're, you're responsible, parents, for the kind of discipline you put into your children. If you allow them to be lazy and inactive and you allow them to be gluttons when they're little kids, then you're going to make them that when they're older. Now, some of you young people, your parents are not going to take responsibility for you because they don't have any responsibility themselves. They don't eat right. They're lazy. They don't work right. They don't sleep right. You're going to have to decide, are you going to be like your mom and your daddy? Now, you may, you may say, well, I'm, I don't, I'm upset that they're that way. No, that's... That's not going to help you a bit. What you're going to have to do is decide that you're going to be different. What you're going to have to decide is that you're going to take charge of your life and you're not going to be to your children what your parents have been to you. You have to take charge. And you say, well, you're, you're meddling. No, folks, this, this is part of the Christian life. If Christ doesn't move in to affect the way you work, the way you sleep, and the way you eat, then he hasn't affected you. Then he says, okay, here's, here's, here's the marks of laziness. I've got a list of uh, verses here and uh, headings for it. Laziness is marked by number one. Laziness is marked by desire to have. It says in Proverbs 13, for the soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Now that's the fat soul. That's not a fat body. Fat soul is a soul that's full of the goodness of things that make up a good soul. Amen. He says, The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing. One of the marks of a lazy sluggard is he wants more than what he's got. He wants it. He desires to have some things. A sluggard desires to have a home that's his own. And a sluggard desires to have a nicer car than the one he's got because it's always broken down. And a sluggard desires to have better shoes and warmer clothes, say, for the wintertime, and better things to eat. He desires. Number two, there's much talk about future accomplishments in a sluggard. A sluggard talks a whole lot about what he's going to do. He's full of talk about what he's going to do. 
says in Proverbs 14, 23, in, in all labor there's profit, but the talks of the lips tendeth only to punery. I've seen kids about 15 years old. Well, what do you do for a living? Well, I don't do anything, but I tell you, this kid starts talking, tells you about what he's going to do. You get about 17, you say to the kid, what are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to do this and this and this, and he starts giving you all this stuff. About 19 years old, what are you going to do? Well, I'm working at McDonald's, but I'm going to, and he's got these big hopes. He gets about 22. What are you doing? Working down here at the factory, minimum wages. When he's 40 years old, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to, and never, nothing ever happens in that life. Listen, if you're 12 years old and you're still talking about what you're going to do, you're kind of late. You ought to already be doing it. If you want to be a doctor and you're 12 years old, you ought to be studying anatomy. If you want to be an engineer and you're 12 years old, you ought to be doing some math that has to do with engineering. You ought to be going through books. You ought to be learning some stuff. You ought to already be engaged. You ought to be engaged in some building and designing and different things. I mean, that ought to be your life. That ought to be the way you're geared. If you want to be a nurse, don't wait to go to school. Somebody teach you something. If that's, if that's your life, if that's the way you want to involve yourself, you need to be engaged right now. Have your little medical bag, be treating people, and, and just do I mean, a sluggard, a lazy person, is somebody that's waiting for it to happen. They're always waiting for it to happen. Life is always in the future for a sluggard. It's never now. It's never get up right now and do something. Lots of talk about what I'm going to be, what I'm going to build, what I'm going to make, and what I'm going to become. People who have time to talk about what they're going to be, make, and become never become anything. They end up working minimum wage for someone else. So young people, one of the greatest sins of youth is laziness. If you have a six-year-old that won't work, he won't work when he's 26 or 36 or 46. I've said this, I'll say it again. By the time a child is three years old, you have formed and molded his personality and his character to what it's going to be the rest of his life, apart from drastic changes that would occur by the power of the Holy Spirit and him taking charge of his own life. By the time he's three or four years old, in fact, by the time they're two, you can see it. By the time they're one and a half, it becomes obvious to me, having seen many one-and-a-half-year-olds grow up to be teenagers and get married and have kids of their own. Now, when a kid is one-and-a-half years old, I can look at that kid and tell you what kind of an adult they're going to make. Now, I can't tell when they're six months old, but it starts to come out when they get a year old. Little inklings of it begin to come out. By the time they're three or four, you're looking at a personality, at a personality. By the time they're seven or eight, it's just as clearly manifest as it can be. By the time they're 10 or 12, they are beginning to reap ill effects of their laziness or whatever it is, however they've been raised. Now, parent, children, a French philosopher said, all work is pain. You know that? Did you believe that? All work is pain, and it is. Work is hot or it's cold, it's sweaty, it's strenuous, and it's painful. Now, just like sports are painful, even fishing can be painful, hunting can be painful, people do it, 
in spite of the pain and somehow don't notice the pain. I used to go out when I was young, rabbit hunting before daylight in the middle of the winter, cold, wade water up to my knees, breaking ice, rabbit hunt all day, get six or seven stinky, dead, stiff rabbits, come in after dark, cold and wet, with a terrible headache, so exhausted, I'd say to my wife, clean the rabbits and fall out and wish I could go the next day too. And I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't pay me $200 a day to do that now. No way. I mean, I, that, that'd be too painful to do that now. And, but, but all work, any, any endeavor is pain. Anything you make a commitment to in this life is going to involve some pain. The sluggard doesn't want that pain. The sluggard just wants to wait for the good stuff to come to him. And people, good things don't come to you without pain, without sacrifice. And if you allow your two and three and four and five and six-year-old to live a life without pain, without putting responsibility upon them, without making them fulfill that responsibility, then you are creating failure into that child at three and four years old. You are, de you are predetermining failure in that child because laziness is total failure in life. Spiritual failure, marital failure, fa failure business failure, laziness is failure. Lazy people are never, ever successful at relationships, at work, at anything. Of course, there are various degrees of laziness. I'm a little bit lazy myself. But I've been able to work enough to provide my own way and to do well in life. And I think maybe most everybody I know is a little bit lazy. We all fight it. See, it's not like I mean, there's very few people who just are workaholics and just always doing something. But uh, most of us fight, wanting to just stop, wanting to quit suffering, wanting to take it easy. Okay, uh, much talk about future accomplishments. Thirdly, Proverbs 21, 25 through 26, covetousness is lack of giving. The desire of the slothful killeth, for his hands refuse to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. One of the marks of a lazy person, one of the characteristics of a lazy person is that he's covetous. It's naturally going to occur. Because if other people are working hard and reaping the benefits of their labor, you know, if you work hard, you can own your own piece of property. And you can build your own house on your piece of property and not owe anything on it when it's built, if you work hard. And you can own your own skill saws and chainsaws and tractors and trailers and trucks and all those things that go to make a life nice, you know, make it convenient. You can have your own grass-cutting machinery and your own farming machinery, and, and all the things that make life what it is can be yours. Now, of course, you're not going to start off at 22, 23, or 25 years old with everything, but in time, by the time you're 30, uh, 35, you should at least, I mean, probably earlier than that you could, but at least by the time you're 30, 35, you ought to be uh, able to retire nearly, you know. 
you ought to be in a position to where you own everything, don't owe anybody anything, where you can kick back. And a, la a lazy person, he wants that too, but he's just not willing to pay the price. And if that kid grows up lazy, he's going to sit there and look at what other people's got and covet it. He's going to covet it. He's going to want what they've got. He's going to wish he had one. He's going to start feeling that it's not fair. And he'll accuse them of being full of avarice. He'll accuse other people of being greedy. He'll accuse other people of being capitalist pigs, you know. Here he is, a, a Christian with this benevolent heart. The difference is the fellow who's got something is giving more away per week than this guy's making. The fellow who's got something, who's got a Christian heart, is giving more away to people who need or to missionaries or to ministries than this other fellow is making in a week. When a need comes up and someone gets sick and has to go to a hospital and gets a $10,000 bill, the fellow who's got possessions, who works hard, can give $2,000 to the hospital bill. And the poor man says, I can't give anything. I'm poor. He's lazy. He's lazy. One of the greatest sins of youth is to allow your kid to be lazy. Young people, the greatest sin is to go on in that laziness. It'll destroy your life. And uh, fourthly, uh, laziness is marked by uh, looks to others to make him productive. A lazy person looks to other people to make him productive. He's dependent. Matthew 26 and 7 says, And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why stand you here all the day idle? Now, of course, uh, we're kind of removing this from the context of the story, but nonetheless it expresses, it's part of a story that expresses uh, the author's sentiment. Jesus is speaking. Why stand you here all the day idle? They said unto him, Because no man hath hired us. Isn't that just like a lazy man? Why, why, why are you not working? I can't find a job. Why aren't you working? Well, I can't find a job that I like. <laughs> well, they, they laid me off. That's why I'm not working. That's a lazy man right there. Now, excuse me for using myself as illustration, but I know me better than anybody in the world. Uh, my wife and I, when we, uh, right after we got married, year after we got married, we bought a travel trailer and, uh, and an old pickup truck, and we headed out to, to, to tour the country. And uh, we, went, we went up north, and we stayed in a, trailer park in Ohio in the snowstorm, sold paintings in a place, and uh, on the way back we were broke, we stopped in this town, didn't have anything, uh, stayed in this guy's yard who did woodwork and worked two days for him feeding this piece of machinery, axe handles, just as fast as you can stand there and feed them like this all day long, you know, and then went down and painted a sign, a little hick town like Lobeville, painted a sign and made, uh, I think, $25, we both bought us a pair of $5 overalls. And uh, something good to eat and got enough gas money to make it on down. We got home, decided to go to California to meet with a group of Christians out there, and we didn't have enough money to, to just enough money for gas to get there on. So we started off, got down in Texas, had a wreck, and then our truck started conking out on us, and it wouldn't run. 
You know what we did? We stopped at this gas station. I said, if you can fix this truck, I'll paint signs for you. He said, I just opened the day before yesterday. Here, uh, paint this sign. He painted the sign. I painted the sign while he fixed my truck. Got out to California, didn't like it, wanted to come home, didn't have a bit of money. We went to a painter, house painter, said, you got any houses you don't paint? He said, yeah, I got one I don't want to paint. I found out why. My wife and I painted it. It was one of those that has these little lap boards and all these corners and it has the exposed uh, uh, ceiling joists, you know, and it was all these different angles and rooms and little gables and stuff, and we painted, we scraped, 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 scraped. I had these scales sticking all over me, you know, and the hot weather out there in Santa Barbara, California, and then we painted and we made, I think, what was it, two or three hundred dollars and had enough money with that to rebuild the motor on our truck and then get home on. And I mean, we have, we have, we have dropped, we've been dropped off in the middle of a place, in the middle of the world somewhere, broke, and you can't put me in a town that I can't make money for sundown. You know, you can't drop me off anywhere in the world that I can't make money before sundown. There's somebody needs a pile of bricks moved or some grass cut or something. Now, listen, when I was 14 years old, my daddy spent $7 and bought a set of brass stencils and gave me two or three half of quarts of paint. I put them in a basket on a bicycle and went door to door and got jobs painting mailboxes. I'd scrape those mailboxes off, put two coats of paint on it, and stencil their name and address on there for two bucks. It took three trips to do it. But I could make $8 a day. At that time, a man's wages were a dollar and a half an hour working in painting houses or carpentry. So I was making pretty good money, half of nearly what a man would make uh, in, in construction. And I was 14, 15 years old. Now, a sluggard will sit right there. You know, I, 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 it's this joke. I'm not afraid of work. I can lay down right beside it and go to sleep. And that's the way a sluggard is. Work will be all around him. He can't see it. He's waiting on somebody to hire him. And it's his fault. It's, it's your fault there's no job. It's your fault that you, you that have, that us have nuts are in our condition. Oh, that's a hardened sluggard, a hardened and lazy man there. Parents, it's your job to breed that out of your children by working them. And now here's, a, here's another condition of a sluggard, fear. Matthew 25, 24 through 29. Then he which had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid my talent in the earth. And lo, there thou hast that is thine. The Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it to him which hath ten talents. For out of for, for every one that hath shall be given, and he that hath more abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Now think about the illustration Jesus gave. That's Jesus' economic and political viewpoint. Amen. You see that? He gives these men, he gives one ten, one five, one one, or I think it was, or five two and one, what was it? He gives a different amount to different ones. Now, he's not a communist. He's giving everybody the same amount. He gave different amounts. Granted, there are people in life who, who start off with more. More talent, better 
training at home, uh, better financial backing, better everything. They start off better. That's true. Well, here's this guy didn't start off with much. You see, his parents didn't get him on the right foot, and so he didn't have anything. And he was given just one little talent. Now, that one talent had the potential of being millions. It did. You know how you make a million dollars out of one dollar? You turn one dollar into two dollars. That's how you do it. And then you turn each one of those dollars into dollars. That's four, and then that's eight, and that's 16, that's 32, that's 64, that's 128, that's 256. I could do that all day, right? That's as far as I've got it memorized. And uh, so you, you, can, you can multiply it, you can double it, but you can't do it and be afraid. See? The sluggard is afraid. The lazy person is afraid to invest what he's got. He's fearful. Parents, teach your kids not to be fearful, to be involved, not to be fearful to do something, not to be fearful to work and to try and to invest, not to be fearful to lose, to go broke and to start over again. So he says, I was afraid. And then what did the master do? He took away from the man what he gave him and gave it to the one that already had ten. That's God's approach. Some of, you, some of you sit back with your one and say, well, they've got ten. Yes, and they're fixing to get the one you got. Amen. You keep living by fear and don't invest it. He said, well, they ought to give it, not according to the way God does things. No, sir, they're not obligated to give it to you. Work, work, work. Say, I can't work. I've got, I'm sick. Work anyhow. Quit complaining. Work. Say, well, if I did, it would hurt. Well, work. I know. Sam Vincent's back hurts him all the time. He works all the time anyhow, doesn't he? I mean, he just kills him all the time. Hurts bad. And uh, Steve Bailey, his wrist hurts. His arm hurts when he works. Still were hurt you some reason? Got over that? Kept working, got over it. That good? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, there's lots of, my wife, my wife is, is, has pains, lots of pains all the time. You'd never know it. You don't ever hear her complain, do you? Well, if she started telling you all the things that's wrong, wrong with her, you, she'd get so much sympathy. Uh, but she keeps right on going. You'll never hear her complain. Now, I complain a little bit occasionally, uh, but uh, she won't. You say, but you just don't understand. I'll understand when you start working and drop over and pass out on the job from pain. Then I'll understand. I'll understand when you're crying in pain and crawling along and still working. And people say, you know, he cries when he works, he hurts so bad. I say, well, you know, we need to help that poor fellow then. But folks, there's no excuse for laziness. No excuse. The only excuse for laziness is your own selfish interest. All right? And uh, another mark of laziness is the person is in subjection to others. Proverbs 12, 24 says, the hand of the diligent shall Bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. The lazy person is always ruled. He's never a ruler. He's never in a position to control others and to control things and to control finances. He's always controlled. He always lives in a, now I'm not, excuse me, but he always lives in a rental house. <laughs> it's just, you know, you're pouring money down a drain when you live in a rental house. 
maybe this, we've done that. We lived in a rental house for eight years. The whole time we lived there, though, we were collecting old sinks and used windows and used bathtubs, and we were going into dumps and picking up bricks. Folks, we spent days picking up bricks and cleaning the mortar off of them. We were taking old concrete blocks and chipping them and cleaning them off. We were tearing down, tore down five or six buildings and collected the lumber, scrounged around lumber yards and bought material. And for about, I think what was it, six or seven years we lived there, we collected material, and then the day came, we bought a $13,000 piece of property, very nice piece of property, four acres. And for very little money then, we built a very nice house on it. We lived there eight years and sold it for $135,000. We hardly had anything in it. And were able to buy 100 acres, clear. Build a house on it, clear. Buy some equipment, clear. And own it all. We did that because we worked. Because on off hours we collected junk and we built a house. A man who is... Con a man who is lazy will live all of his life on somebody else's property, kicked around, booted around, working for somebody else, and gets old and has to be put in a home to be taken care of or fed by government money. Now, young people, if you're 14 and lazy, you can expect to have that kind of life. Nobody's going to hand you a job and make you rich. It's, it's an employ, employer's job to make sure his employees never get rich. <laughs> That's his duty, you know. His duty is to make money off you, to pay you less than what you're worth. If he didn't, it wouldn't be worth hiring you. You've got to be worth several times what he's paying you. Now just think about it. If you're worth several times what he's paying you, if you weren't a sluggard, think of all the money you'd have. Think of all you'd be able to give away. Think of all the, that you'd have in life. Now you say, well, you sound like you're talking about selfish, gribbing, getting and grabbing and gaining. I won't tell you, I give a large percentage, far more than 10% of what I take in. Okay? And then it's subjection to others, and then excuses is what the slugger is marked by. Proverbs 22, 13, the slothful man saith, there's a line without, I shall be slain in the streets. <laughs> I can't go out and work today. There's a line out there. He's going to kill me if I go out there. I can't go out there. The date's too hot. Oh, I can't work in this weather. It's too cold. Oh, it's raining today. Oh, I, I can't go out there. All kinds of excuses a slugger's got. A sluggard life is marked by excuses. Parents, you know when that starts is when you let that little five-year-old say, you need to do this, and he gives you an excuse why he can't, you accept it. You're training him to avoid suffering of work by an excuse. You're making a liar out of him and a lazy bum at five years old. And then insurmountable adversity marks the sluggard. Proverbs 15, 19, the way of the slothful man is a hedge of thorns. But the way of the righteous is made plain. You can set two men down in the same location, the slothful man looks around and says, oh, that's such a high hedge of thorns. There's no way we could ever 
No way we could ever put a fence in here. To, and get, no way we could get rid of all those thorns and bring cattle in here. We won't be able to have any cows. No, won't be able to have any sheep. The thorns are too thick. The other man goes in there and said, look at that. I don't even have to build a fence. Got thorns. Let's bring the cows in today. We'll put us a little gap across this end. We'll have them grazing, have us some cash before you know it. And within a year's time, the diligent man is a farmer and got milk, got butter, got cheese. The slothful man is still sitting there in a little shack not far from that hedge of thorns wishing he could go out there and tear them down and saying, yes, sir, one day I'm going to tear down that hedge of thorns and I'm going to build the prettiest white fence you ever saw. I'm going to have a long winding driveway with trees on both sides of it. There's going to be a flower bed right here. Little fountain over here and a big nice house for my wife. There she stands pregnant with 14 kids, you know. All worn out. And he's going to do all this stuff for what? He's a slothful man. Lazy man. I know I'm trampling on some people today. There's no way to preach this without it. How do you make it nice, you know? Now, I could ignore it. I could just overlook it. I could just forget it. And just let this slide on by. But, but what about the kids coming home? Going to let them repeat the mistakes of the parents? So insurmountable adversity. And then finally, in this list, not final this morning, but finally, the way of the sluggard is marked by wastefulness. Wastefulness. The sluggard's wasteful. A diligent man... Well, what he gets, he will use it, and he will save it, and he will preserve it, and he will use it. He'll have it to loan, or he'll have it for another day. A slothful man will lose what he does get. It reminds me, I guess I'm slothful in one area. I, I'll get a, a new hoe every year, you know, because the handle rots out of last year for <laughs> I'll take it out and I'll hoe the garden and I'll leave it laying there and it'll rain on it and then it'll get in the mud or something and then I'll run over with a bush hog when the weeds get high and tear it up and then have to get me another one the next year, you know. That, that'd be an example of slothfulness. Whereas a man who would take the time to go and put his hoe in the barn and take care of it, that hoe would last him for 15, 20 years, that handle would. It would it, it, I've seen people who use hoes until they wore them thin, I mean, to handle them so much. Mine always just kind of blows up from the sun and the water, you know. Getting on it and the grain gets so rough, it makes your hands rough to use them before their handles rot out. But uh, a slothful man's way is marked by everything that he does get just falls apart. He just doesn't keep anything. He won't take care of it. And uh, wastefulness. Proverbs uh, 18.9, He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Proverbs 24.30, I went by the field of the slothful, by the vineyard of the man void of understanding, and lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles, had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall was broken down. Ecclesiastes 10.18, But by much slothfulness the building decayeth, and through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. Uh, at one point, you know, my wife was concerned our commode might fall through the floor. <laughs> you ever had one leak for a while, and, and it totally rot the floor out. Well, it didn't. We, somebody fixed it. I don't think it was even me before the thing fell through the floor. But a slothful man will just sit and let everything around him fall down. He'll just let his whole house rot down on him. Just let it keep leaking. And uh, you fix that trailer, don't you? Let it keep leaking. And uh, he'll just uh, let his uh, automobile run down until it, it won't run. And then he'll let it uh, sit there and, 
and, uh, and, and just destroy everything he's got. Slothfulness. All right, what's our response to slothfulness? Here's what it says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any should not work, neither should he eat. Now that's a Christian response to a lazy man. Think about it. We are commanded in the Word of God, if a man doesn't work, don't feed him. Let him starve. And you say, isn't that cruel? No, he'll work. <laughs> he'll work a little bit, unless there's some kind of other bomb around that's going to feed him, you know. But you get a lazy, the worst thing you can do for a lazy man is just keep on giving to him and feeding his habits. Now, I have people come around a lot of times, lazy people wanting to borrow stuff. I don't loan stuff to lazy people. If you're, if you're lazy, for instance, a fellow is lazy, and he's so lazy and he's so poor that he, somebody gives him a wood-burning stove, so he puts it in his house. And he says, I'm going to save some money here. I'm going to have a wood-burning stove. So then he comes over to my house and says, I want to borrow your chainsaw so I can cut some firewood from my wood-burning stove. I say no. I say, if your design in life is to have a wood-burning stove, then you work and make enough money to own your own chainsaw. Now, if you've got a chainsaw and it breaks down, you've got a wood-cutting day planned, or you've got two saws already and you need a third one because you've got a crew working, you can come over and borrow my saw. But if you're a lazy bum and you just want to use my saw and my gasoline and wear my chain out, because you don't want to work hard enough to buy your saw, I'm not going to loan you my saw. I'll turn you down. Even if you're a good friend, I'll say no. I'll say chainsaw's worth. That's like borrowing a jug of milk. When you're bringing it back, it won't all be there. You know? Now, a shovel is different. You can use a shovel, use a shovel, use a shovel, use a shovel. That's like borrowing a kitchen spoon. You bring it back, I still got a spoon. But when you borrow a chainsaw, that thing's only got so many hours in it. That chain's only got so many hours in it. You're using it up. You're using my money. You're a bum. You're a bum. When you live on somebody else's equipment so you don't have to work and own one, you're a bum. You're a lazy bum. Is that right? Oh, not quite here. All right. Uh, Finally, I've got several verses here. The kin, we'll take about five minutes to probably finish this up. The, something, the second sin of youth uh, is idleness. Idleness. Being idle. You know, when a car is idling, or a tractor is idling, or a chainsaw is idling, that's when it's not in use. It's just sitting there running and burning gas. It's ready to do something, but it's not doing anything. It's idle, right? All right, the 1 Timothy 3, 5, 13 says, And with all they learn to be idle. They learn to be. The kids learn to be idle. Their mamas teach them to be idle. Wandering about from house to house. Not only idle, but tattlers also and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. One of the great sins of youth is to have kids idle-minded. To have them not engaged in working or studying or cooking or playing hard or anything. When you get an idle kid, you're going to get fighting kids. You're going to get fussing kids. You're going to get grouchy kids. You're going to get mean kids. You put those kids to work. You get them involved in doing something. You get them involved playing hard. Anything but idleness. 
Idleness is a great evil in the homeschool family. It is one of the great evils in the homeschool family. Is to put a bunch of kids in a house and let them sit there all day idle and expect them to be nice to each other. I've often said on these seminar circuits, you know, women over and over, when you ask for questions from the floor over and over again, they'll say, my kids fuss and fight all the time. What can I do? I know why their kids fuss and fight. Their kids fuss and fight because they're idle. I said, look, ma'am, I said, if you were to take me and the preacher here and the song leader over here and 15 of these other men and put us all in a room and make us stay there 12 hours all day long without much to do, I guarantee we'd all be fighting each other by the end of the day. You leave us in there all winter and see what you'd have. You take 10 women, put them in a house. That's right, 17 minutes, you'd have a big fight. Unless one of them pulled out a juicy piece of gossip. That's what he said. He said, listen to it. Wherewithal they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle but tattlers. You should have known by now my wife and I's stance on that. And sit down to be idle. And I don't come over to yours. Do you ever come over to your house and sit down and be idle? Do I ever come over and just sit down and just go on and yak and just carry on? And let, boy, that's painful to me. You come to my house to be idle. If you haven't got anything to do, I do. If I don't have anything to do, I'll go out and find something to do. Because I don't, I don't want to just hear you talk. There's sin in just talking. There's sin in idleness. And I want to tell you, a modern invention that's perpetuated this thing, and that's the telephone. When you call my house, if you've talked three minutes, I've switched ears because one of them's hurting and that other one has run its duration. I'm going to hang up after three minutes. I don't want to talk to you any longer than that. Three minutes is all the length of time you need to talk to me to say, when, what time is it? When are we going to be there? And have you got it? Or, I mean, that's enough. 30 seconds is enough on a telephone. Don't, don't tell me any big long tales on the telephone. And don't say it twice. I'm pretty bright. Yeah. This idleness, when women, women call each other all the time and sit there on the telephone talking. Folks, there's nothing but sin in that. You're teaching your kids to grow up to be idle and sinful. You, I, I tell my girls that you, you, you don't talk to them long either. If they get off the phone, if you, if you call, my, call my wife, my wife's kinder than I am, you know. No, she's not. She, she's meaner. Because she'll sit there and talk to you and, and, be, and be nice to you, you know, and, and pamper you and listen to you carry on like that. And that's not good for you, see? And I'll go in, I'll tell her, get off the phone. Hang it up. And she'll say, I got to go, my husband's here. Any of you ever been talking to her and she said, I got to go, my husband's here? What she means is I'm standing over saying, that's it. You've talked long enough. I mean, you, here she sits there for three minutes of silence. If you've got something that needs some serious discussion and prayer, come on over and let's talk about it. If it's not worth that, drop it. Don't want to hear it. And so... You allow your children to be idle. You allow them to sit around and do nothing. You allow them not to be engaged with their hands, and you are building failure into your children. Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her, and in her daughters, 
neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And that was the sins of Sodom. Think about it. The sins of Sodom, of the women of Sodom, was a sin of idleness. While the women of Sodom were idle, going about busybodies from house to house and talking, the husbands were out with each other. That was the sin of Sodom. Produced a bunch of queer sons. The idle women produced a bunch of queer sons in Sodom. You know, shopping is idleness. I mean, just shop, 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 shop. It's idleness. It's, it's for the rich and the affluent and the lazy. Shop, shop, shop all the time. And uh, that just, just going over and sitting around and doing that. I mean, if, if you're going to get together, get together and sow. Or get together and make something for what it says here. It said they wouldn't put their hand to strengthen the poor and needy. Get together and do something for someone. Go over to someone's house that's new in the community and help them paint. Go over and cut someone's grass. You say, but I'm, I'm a lady and I'm 35 years old. Yeah, and you're fat. You need to push a lawn more. Go over and sweat some of those impurities out, you know. Push that lawn more around. Help somebody out. Do something. Instead of just sitting around and gossiping and talking and mealy-mouthing. Boy, there's sin in that. All right? Proverbs uh, 31, 27. She looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. That's a virtuous woman. Uh, eating the bread of idleness. Now, have you ever thought about that expression, eating the bread of idleness? You know what idleness causes people to do? Snack. You ever thought about that? Idle people snack. They eat the bread of idleness. You get idle and you say, oh, what am I going to do? You know, eating makes you feel good. I enjoy eating. I enjoy mealtime. You quit, get, quit working when you eat. Sit down with the family and it's cheerful and it's pleasant. And Aside from the eating part, just it's kind of getting together there around the table and it's a good experience, you know. And so I look forward to that. And I don't like to eat alone. I like everybody to be there with me when I eat, you know. And I um, like everybody to sit down, even if they're already full or not, don't want to eat. Sit down and look at me while I eat, you know. Let's talk. Let's, let's have a little meal here together, family meal. But when you're, when you're lazy, you're idle, you go in, you, you pinch off a little something, and you eat it like that. About 15 minutes later, you pinch off a little something else and eat it. And you have a snack, you pinch off a little something else and eat it. You're eating the bread of idleness. You see that? That's the bread of idleness. Slothful person, lazy person. Nothing to do. You get out working. You know, when I'm, when I'm working at the computer, about 11 o'clock, I get starved to death in the morning. But if I get out working with my hands, I get hungry, but don't think about it. I can sometimes work on to 12 or 1 o'clock before I'm starving to death. <laughs> really? And, and I can go all day long. I've been out where I, working out long, and I just, just skip meal, just forget it. I mean, I'm hungry, but I, there's more important things to think about right now than eating. I've had my wife do that. She'd come, get ready to go to bed, said, you know, I clean forgot to eat supper. I was so busy. And she served me and forgot to eat. So, Proverbs 19, 15, Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, an idle soul shall suffer hunger. In other words, he won't work and feed himself. Ecclesiastes 10.18, by much slothfulness the building decayeth, 
through idleness of the hands, the house droppeth down. Matthew 12, 36, But I say unto you that every idle word men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Idleness leads to idle talk. That's our last verse. Idleness leads to idle talk. It leads to sin. And parents, to teach your kids that it's a way of life, you're the one who sets the pattern for the way of life. If you arrange your home, if you arrange your time so that it's an idle home, and there's idle time for yourself and your children, you're building failure into your children. That's a fact. I'm going to stop there. Next week, we're going to cover the second one, maybe the third one. Excuse me, the third one, maybe the fourth one. Guess what the third and fourth one would be? What do you think they'd be? The third sin of youth is stubbornness. The fourth one is deceitfulness, dishonesty. We'll be covering those. We started a discussion last week. You got it, Sam? We started a discussion on uh, the greatest sins of youth. And uh, some of you, when you left here, you thought it was the greatest sins of mom and daddy. But you know where youth sins come from? They come from mom and daddy. And the only person that can do anything about the sins of youth especially young, young children, is mom and daddy. And if mom and daddy don't do something about it, it won't get done. So when we're discussing the sins of youth, we're discussing the parents and the home and the family as a whole. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God that's before us today. We ask you to open it to us and teach us, instruct us, give us wisdom and discernment. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now last week we covered the first sin of youth was laziness laziness. We covered that pretty well. Then we covered the second sin of youth, which is idleness. Idleness. And uh, we didn't cover that thoroughly. I want to hit a little bit of that before we go to the next one. Now, I'll give you a list of all of them we've got here. Next one is stubbornness. I won't deal with it in that order. Deceitfulness, intemperance, vanity, foolishness, scorning, bad company, pride, and disobedient to parents. And that's the sins of youth. Now, on this thing of idleness, the Bible spoke in 1 Timothy 5, 3, wherewithal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, busybody speaking things they ought not. Now, that's speaking of women in the church. He spoke of those women in the church who are, who are idle, they're tattlers. They're busybody. And he said they go about from house to house being, being involved in other people's affairs, getting under other people. Uh, one of the great sins of the church today is busybody women. Now, I don't have anything against women. I like women. I like them better than I do men. Uh, I have ever since I was 12. And my wife is very dear to me. I enjoy her company more than all the people on the face of the earth put together. And I'd rather spend time with her than anyone else. And I like ladies. I like women, you know. I enjoy their company. Uh, but one of the biggest problems in the church today are women talking. Now, what creates that problem is idleness. 
having nothing else to do. If men didn't have anything else to do, they'd be a big problem talking to. And occasionally you see men that are big problems because they're idle. They'll call you on the phone and you can see that they just want to talk. Or they'll come over and they'll tell you something and they don't have anything else to say, so they'll tell you the same thing again. Or it's like they didn't get the response they wanted the first time, so they tell it all over again, a little bit different. And you know about the fifth time they tell it, they're lying because it didn't work the first two times. They keep adding to it, you know, and the story gets bigger and bigger, and they just keep talking. And women will get together. Uh, many churches have these women's meetings and women's prayer meetings and women's fellowship meetings. And really all they are is a time to get together and say, do you know what sister so-and-so said? Her husband, do you know what happened in her family? You know her husband, oh, no, mine's just like that too. You know, all men are that way. Well, here's what I told my husband. And I told him, and he told me, yeah, you know what she said? And she told him, and he told her, and it's just disgraceful, isn't it? It's just awful. I, I, how can you honor a man like that? Oh, well, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to pray for strength to do it. <laughs> and they go and they share their prayer burdens. All they're doing, folks, is griping about their husbands and complaining and getting together because they're idle, busy bodies going about from house to house. And the telephone has created a secondary way of visiting your neighbor and being a busybody. Women will talk on the phone. You know, when, when, when I call a house two or three times and it's busy, I know we, that, that home's got problems, you know. Uh, I know that, and you, call, and, you call, and you call for a half hour. Well, the phone's busy. You reckon they didn't hang it up? Oh, no, she talks on the phone a lot. Mm, does she now? you got a problem in that home. Any woman that talks on the phone for a half hour has got problems. Bad, bad problems. You say, we got something to discuss. Did you settle it, talking about it? Did it help the other person? Did it fix the problem? Uh, who were you talking about? Busy bodies. Now, when, when you have, get the children, when you have children raised in a home where the mother is a busybody, then that daughter is going to be a busybody. I tell my boys, look, when you're looking for a wife, you look at the mother. If she's a busybody, if she's cantankerous, if she, if she talks about her husband, if she doesn't obey him, if she doesn't respect him, you watch out, that daughter's going to be exactly like her. Daughters are cut out of the same mold, made the same shape as the cookie mama, you know? I mean, they're baked on the same sheet, same way, got the same sprinklings on them. They come right from the same mold. Now, I don't care how sweet and pretty they look right now. You watch it. You let them get a couple babies and get fat, and they're going to be just like mama. They're going to be talking the same way. They're going to be griping the same way. They're going to be complaining the same way because they were raised like her. Have you ever noticed how my boys walk like me? talk like me and how the kids respond. I mean, I, I have met children that I knew their parents, but I'd never met the kid. And the, it may not be in a situation where you would expect to find this person, didn't know they were there. You look at them walk, you watch them talk, and you say, hey, you must be so-and-so's kid. Oh, yeah, you know my daddy? Yeah, I knew your daddy 20 years ago. I hadn't seen him in 10 years, but I can tell just by looking at you that you're his kid. I mean, how often is it that 
that the way kids laugh, the way they move their eyes, the way they bat their eyes, the way they tilt their head, the way they walk, all of that they pick up at home from their parents. Why? Because you learn to talk listening to your mama. You learned to respond. Girls learn to respond to men by the way mama responds to men. Girls learn to respond to life circumstances. Uh, you'll have a mother, for instance, who uh, eats poorly and she's constipated. And so because she eats poorly and she's constipated, her body is full of poisons. So she has headaches all the time. And she has backaches all the time. And she has, she's real tired. She's always tired and, and, and lazy. And so because she's tired and lazy and worn out, she takes a little stuff, you know, to keep her going and, and to make her feel better. And she's, she says, I, you know, I have, I have a problem. And so you meet her daughter. She's 12 years old. And the daughter says, I'm so tired. I have this problem. And puts her hand the same way on her forehead and, leans, and complains the same way. And maybe the mother says, I just have this problem with my nerves. And the 12-year-old girl says, I've got this problem with my nerves. The mother says, I just can't deal with a lot of tension. The daughter says, I just can't deal with a lot of tension. And you've got this clone coming along exactly like mama. Same thing with, you've got, you've got a, you've got a uh, father who doesn't respect his wife. He speaks critically to her. And so what have you got? You've got a son who doesn't respect his mother. He speaks critically to her. Girls, you watch out. However, that young fellow right now responds to his mother is how he's going to respond to you later on. Does he treat her with that respect? Is he unkind to her? That's the way he's going to be to you. Is he a bully towards his sisters? That's the way he's going to be towards you. You see, idleness creates, idleness creates all sorts of meddling, lazy, selfish, indulging problems. We talked last week about going about from house to house, and it said they eat the bread of idleness. How many times do I see little children, little girls, four or five years old, big, flat, plump kids? Why? Because they got an idle mama, and they stay at home, and they eat the bread of idleness. Just pick a little here, and pick a little there, and much a little here, and much a little there, and eat that bread of idleness because there's nothing else to do. You say, how do you cure idleness? You have something that you have to do to stay alive. It keeps you from being idle. Uh, one thing you can do is you could get rid of your washing machine and wash your clothes on a running board. That'd get rid of your idleness. Now, I don't, my wife said, no, don't, don't tell her. Uh, don't worry, she's not idle. Uh, you, could, you could hand grind your flour like that maybe. See, that'd get rid of your idleness. Or if you don't want to do any of those things, you could go down to the nursing home every day for an hour and a half with your daughter, and y'all could go down there and visit all the little old ladies and sing to them and hold their hand and talk to them. And uh, when they say, George, is that you? Say, yeah, that's me. <laughs> but, you know, whatever they want. And go down and cheer them up. That'd keep you being idle. Uh, you could raise some animals. You could raise some chickens, some cows or something like that. Build fences, you know, to keep men. I mean, that'd really keep you busy if you got animals. Because they're always getting out and eating your garden or something else in the garden. So that'd keep you from being idle. You could do that. You could always sew all your clothes like that. And instead of buying anything canned, you could buy it so that you have to take a little time to cook it and prepare it. That'd keep you from being idle. Uh, you could get involved in a good hobby, something that's helpful, something that, uh, where you make stuff or, or do something creative. I don't care what it is. It, it could be anything from writing to making little potholders and giving them away, you know. 
but you need something that keeps you busy where you don't have time just to piddle because piddlers end up getting involved in sin and kids who are raised as piddlers, kids who are raised with nothing to do, kids who are homeschooled and have to sit for five hours in a little class with their mama, you know, and they get through and there's nothing to do and they tell them just play and be quiet. Those kids go nuts. You make hyperactive boys by having them in a home, in a house, shut up, and nothing to do. Those boys ought to be free to, to romp and to run and scream and holler and tear things down and build them back up and climb and fall and do it all over again. And if they're not, if you make them idle, you're going to create sin in that family. Same thing with daughters. They need to be busy. Uh, when a child is two years old, he ought to be helping wash dishes. You say he'd get water on the floor. Sure he will. He'll rot the cabinets out. I mean, you know. He'll stand up there and drip water down. Those fine, uh, fine uh, uh, oak uh, cabinets will just bust and fall apart and fall right off the wall. You'll know your, your countertop, your formica, will peel and come up like that. It'll look off and get brown mold growing around it. Why? Because you've got your little three- and four-year-old washing dishes. And they're just making a big mess out of it. And the chairs are scarred up because they have to stand in the chairs to do it. You say, but it takes them too long. I know it takes about three or four hours, but they love it. They, they float the bowls, make boats out of them, you know, and, and they flip water on each other, and they break dishes, and they just have a great time. You say, but what, what happens when they get bored? Don't make them keep doing it. When they get bored and get tired, you either work with them or give them another job. Don't make slaves out of them. That's a form of idleness. Just get bored and have to stand there and wash dishes you don't want to wash. Now, you kids didn't hear that, just for the parents. You know, wash dishes with them. Sing songs while you're washing dishes with them. Talk about something in the book of Proverbs or about something else or tell them some story. Get them to tell you a story. When they get through, sit them down at the table if that's what they like doing with a bunch of color crayons and drawing paper and stuff and draw pictures and hang their pictures on the wall and talk about it and laugh and have a good time and, and act out things and do skits and pantomimes and dance around the house and Go outside and do something, come back inside and do something. Just stay busy and active and fun and make life just a, a roar, you know. That's what kids need. And to allow your children to be idle, to not have anything to do, to allow boredom to come into that home is going to create not only problems now, but the rest of their lives. I go to these seminars and people ask credit say, my kids fight, my kids fuss, they don't get along. I say, they're bored. I mean, I don't have to go very long. I know they're bored. You've got them cooped up with nothing to do, and they're bored. That's why they're fussing and fighting. All right, let's go to the next sin of youth. This is akin to these that we've been talking about. It's intemperance. Intemperance, lack of self-control. Now, we're not just talking about food here. That's one of them of course. We've talked about that pretty thoroughly last week. But when, when, you, when you allow a child to eat till he gets fat, and you allow him to eat till he gets fat, you're creating extra fat cells, and you're creating a problem for that child the rest of his life, he's going to have problems with overeating. Or when you allow a child to turn down the food that's on the table and allow them to eat something else. In seminars, women say, my, my child won't eat, won't eat what's put on the table. I said, well, that's, a, that's the easiest problem I've ever, I've never had anybody ask an easier question. Why, why don't you ask me something difficult? 
something that requires some creativity. But what I do, just won't eat what's put on the table. I said, nothing for it you do. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just, just tell him he's, he can sit there while you eat. Don't make him eat it. I mean, it's, he's got a right to put stuff in his mouth and not put stuff in his mouth. That's no problem. Just let him sit there while you eat or let her sit there and tell her you can have what's on the table or, or if you don't want it, you can sit here while we eat and you can wait till the next meal. Say, so, well, he won't eat at the next meal either. I said, well, that's still no problem. You just tell him he can sit there and watch y'all eat. Be cheerful about it. Don't get upset. It's no problem. It's not your problem. It's his problem. You said, but, but he wouldn't eat then either. Well, that's no problem. I've seen kids get sick and have diarrhea for six days, and they don't die. They not only keep not keeping food down, they're not keeping liquids down. Why, well, a good six-day fast do a lot of good for some of these little four-year-olds that are all full of toxic chemicals and weenies and stuff like that, you know? I mean, really help them out. And, and by, by this time, the mother's, you know, she's beginning to squirm, and she says, well, um, but... But they get hungry. How, when do they get hungry? Oh, about an hour after the meal. What do you give them then? Oh, well, uh, peanut butter and jelly? Uh, Hostess Twinkies? M&M's? I said, okay, mother. She said, oh, they won't eat sweets. <laughs> Ask me another one of those simple questions again. That's easy to deal with. You just go home and you look through your house and you say, what has sugar in it? Ketchup has sugar in it. Throw the ketchup out. What else has sugar? Mayonnaise, throw that in there. What else has sugar in it? Throw it out. Potato chips, throw them out. Throw out all that stuff with sugar. Throw the sugar out. Get rid of all of it. Don't buy anything sweet ever. Don't bring it home. And explain to your kid the reason you're doing it is you've got a junk food junkie here. You've got a sugar addict. You've got an intemperate kid. And, you're... and I've seen mothers start doing this. They wanted me to give them some kind of trick. You know, they wanted me to tell them to go home and beat the kid to death. They thought that worked. Go ahead, let him go, man. I like that. <laughs> I got me a real responder down here. Uh, <laughs> we'll just teach him, say amen. He'll be all right, huh? Uh, so I see the mothers start to melt, and I've looked at him. I said, you're not going to do it, are you? I mean, I've done it many times. You're not going to do it, are you? She said, well, I couldn't. I said, why not? She said, my husband wouldn't let me. I said, ma'am, your husband would be glad for you to stop eating sugar. You're a little too fat. You say, you don't say that to people. Oh, yes, I do. They come there to hear my opinion. I mean, when, when I fly all the way down to Dallas, Texas, or up to Cincinnati, Ohio, or up to Chicago or Gary, Indiana or North Carolina and people drive for three hours to come see me, I don't disappoint them. I mean, they can, they can talk to James Dobson any day. They can hear him on the radio. They want something smooth and emotional. They came, they came to get something. I'm going to give it to them. Plus, I get a lot of requests for seminars. I can always go somewhere else next year if they don't want me there. So I said, you're not going to do it, are you? And she said, well, I said, you know why? It's because you've got a problem with eating sugar, and that's the reason your kids have got a problem eating sugar, because you keep the house full of that stuff, and you nibble on it, and they want to nibble on it, and the cure is easy, but you're not willing to do it. And you know, it's like Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. They go away sorrowful. 
They do. They turn around and walk away sorrowful. They wanted some little psychological trick. Think how, think how, how effective that would be. Just not have anything sweet in the house. Nothing, ever. Nothing but English peas. <laughs> and sp- <laughs> yeah, English peas. And spinach. And potatoes with no sour cream to go on them. You know? Just, just boiled potatoes. And, and, and cooked carrots with no sugar on them. And spaghetti made without any sugar in the spaghetti sauce either. Just lots of garlic and onions and bell pepper and a little squash thrown in. And just a small amount of meat and a lot of good noodles. Mm, I'm getting hungry already. And you just say to your kids, eat all you want. Eat what you want. Don't eat it. That's all right. Forget it. I guarantee you in about 24 hours, that kid's going to say, pass the English peas. He's going to say, some more spinach, mama. And in about a week, you're going to have a kid that loves to eat good food because he's hungry. And there's just nothing else in the house to eat. And there's no point in waiting till after the meal or middle of the afternoon because they're not going to get any. They're going to get, they're going to get celery for snacks. Yeah. And, and carrots for snacks. And the peanut butter is going to be the kind without any corn oil in it, without any sugar in it, and fix it off of your mouth when you try to eat it. And it's going to be on whole wheat bread instead of white stuff. You know, that stuff that constipates people. Now, intemperance is a problem with youth. Intemperance in food. But another kind of intemperance is a problem with youth is intemperance in play, in entertainment. You know, we, we play at our house. We have a great time. We have more laughs probably one evening than you guys do all week long, all put together. I mean, we have a great time, don't we? We're always laughing and making jokes and and just doing funny and silly things. Just to give you an example. Yesterday, somebody came up to visit we didn't know, and my wife was out talking to uh, her out in the yard, and I got kind of bored, you know. Uh, every time I go up, one of them would be crying. And so I went in the house, and my wife had just bought two new bathroom plungers. You know, those things that fit like that with a big rubber suction cup, kind of like the, you know, that kids used to have arrows. They'd shoot them like that, stick them in people's foreheads. And so and you got to lick them first so they stick good. So I got that plunger. And I thought, what if this thing would stick to the refrigerator? And I was just in the house by myself, and it hadn't been used for anything else yet. So, what, man, sure enough. And so I thought, wonder if you could throw it and stick it to the refrigerator. So I stood back like that, and it, it kept drifting wrong. So I said, the way to do it is throw it like an axe. So I got back about 16 feet, and I put one rotation in it. Sure enough, what, man, just like that, stick to the refrigerator. And so... It, it, it wouldn't stick real good uh, throwing it, so I went over and I stuck it in the sink, put some detergent in there, and got it kind of wet, you know, with some detergent and water. And I walked over and threw it, and shut off, man, that thing stuck good. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. I'll show the kids when they get it. So I went outside and got to hoeing or something. Deb said, come on, we're going to the house. So she walks in with this woman who'd driven six hours to see us, and the first thing she sees is this plunger stuck to the side of the refrigerator. <laughs> Now, my wife didn't get upset about that. She thought that was funny, too. <laughs> didn't bother her any. <laughs> so we got to laughing about it last night and just took to throwing the plunger around the house, you know, and trying to stick it to stuff. I mean, you can't have as much fun as we do. 
at home. But you know, there's a time, there's a time for goofing off, there's a time for fun, there's a time for joking around, and there's time for work. There's a time for study, and there's a time for meditation and serious talk, and time for prayer. And when you allow children to play their life away, just to dawdle their life away, just, when you have, when you have a, a video games, I despise video games. I have never played a video game on a computer. Now, maybe one time the kids were doing one, I came in and, and went for two minutes or something, but I've never played a video game. Uh, these things that go along and eat stuff like this, you know. I mean, you know, just like that. I mean, that stuff destroys minds. I don't know what it is, but I think you get these things in your brain that starts going through your brain like this, you know, and just eating everything, man. And to, to allow kids that are bored to sit in front of something like that and, and just sit there and, and, and eat stuff, you know, and, and jump from one thing to make that little strange sound. I mean, that's poison to kids' minds. That's death to their souls and their brains get involved in that and and then just to have a room where you got this video thing and and every evening to just send them in there just to sit there and watch that now you said but we got some good videos it's still mindless now i watch a video every once in a while about once a month or maybe once every two weeks and maybe i'll skip three months before i'll see one and i like to see something occasionally when i just get tired i get worn out my body is tired and uh i can't study any longer i can't think any longer and I decided I just want to lay down and, or, or, or sit down and, and be mindless for a little while and watch something pretty and good sound. Not, I'm talking about women now. I'm talking about the mountains and the Alps, okay? And watch something that's just, just entertaining. And I'll do that every once in a while. But folks, to have a routine where your kids daily or even every weekend expect to be entertained with a video player with Hollywood, or even if it's not produced by Hollywood, where they just involved and their souls are soaking it up. You're teaching them idleness. You're teaching them indulgence. You're teaching them intemperance. You're teaching them not to be able to control. And I'll tell you another place of intemperance is, is in reading. If you allow your children to get involved reading, especially like these romance novels now, I've read several of those romance, Christian romance novels, you know, and I know that they only get one kiss and it's on the last page. I know that. I know there's no smooching, making out, or nudity in them. I know that they high, high morals and all this stuff and they wait till the very last page and they've gone through this honorable stuff and finally they kiss and walk down the aisle. I mean, you know, I know that. I've read a couple of them. But I want to tell you something. Life is not a romance novel. Life is not like that. It's not that way. And if you allow a young girl to be raised on romance novels, she's not going to be able to deal with real life and marriage. She's not going to... Now, you take a mother. I've seen mothers get involved in this where they lay around and read romance novels every day and there's not a one of them happy with their husband. You can't have a woman who sits around reading romance novels that's happy with her husband. She's going to think she's got the biggest dud in the world. 
because compared to that knight that comes riding in on the shiny uh, Mustang, uh, you know, uh, she's going to know she's got a dud. I mean, this guy's the most handsome fellow in the world. He's wealthy. He always smacks the bad guy. He's tough. He's smart. And he has all kinds of appeal. And what's her husband? He's got a pot belly. He's, he doesn't understand her needs. He doesn't court her. He doesn't, uh, he's not rich. He's not wealthy. And he really doesn't like to spend much time with her. So what does she do? She spaces out into the romance novels. And she indulges. He may come home and say, don't read those things. And she, you know what she's going to do? She's going to dishonor him. Why? Because that's her life. That's where reality is to her in the romance novels. We've got women in this church just like that. We've got women right here. Everybody in the church knows that that's the way you live because your husband complains about it. Because your kids mention it. Because you've been caught doing it. Now, you know what you're going to raise? You're going to raise daughters that are idle. You're going to raise daughters that are indulgent, that are intemperate, that don't understand that there's duties that they have to perform, that that house needs to be cleaned, taken care of, that the meal needs to be on the table, and you need to be rested, bathed, dressed, neat, and pretty, and ready to court when your husband gets home in the evening. If you did, he'd come home sooner. If you did, he wouldn't be want to be working on cars or go fishing so much. If you did, he wouldn't want to be running around country or working late hours. Why? Because you are intemperate. When you are intemperate, you're raising intemperate children and you're destroying your marriage and your own happiness. TV, videos, books, food, clothes. When you begin to indulge in making extra clothes just to have something new and different to wear, something a different color, a different style, and when you become preoccupied with sewing because you want to look nice, why is it looking nice is always looking sexy? Well, why, why is it that way? Why is it looking nice is always saying, look at my body, isn't it, isn't it devastating? Yeah, I'll give you about 10 years and see how devastating it is. You'll have it tied up, propped up, and poked out, and we'll all know that it's made out of cotton and nylon. See, I, I'm not impressed. I've been around long enough just not to be impressed. But these, some women, they get involved, and they shop, they shop, and they're, about, they're indulgent, they're intemperate in the way they shop and what they're doing all the time. They're getting involved in this and that. Why? Because their body is the center of their attention. Doing their hair and doing their face and doing this and doing that. And you're raising daughters that that's the way they're going to live. And I can look at some of the young girls in this church and I know where they came from. The interesting thing is some of the mothers now don't look like that. Some of the mothers don't appear to be intemperate, but their daughters are. That tells me the mothers used to be that way. That when the daughters were two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, there were some intemperate mothers who were given over to the flesh. The mothers changed their ways. Maybe because she lives in this community. Maybe because she saw the error of her ways. But it seems to be too late for the daughters. The daughters are now intemperate in the way that they deal with the presentation of themselves. 
And I'm not saying you've got to go around looking like a rag doll. I'm not saying you've got to go around with your hair unbrushed or anything like that. I'm not saying that if you've got a big pimple, you can't get some uh, acrylic paint and put over it to hide it, you know. Or if you've got four or five freckles that bother you and you want to cover them up with some paste or gook, that doesn't bother me any, just as long as the paste doesn't crack when you smile. But, you know, then it starts getting obvious. But, but, but this thing of just, be, just worrying about yourself, and then, you know, people get a little older and they start doing operations to try to keep themselves young. They start, you know, getting cut like this, and they pull the skin up, keep their eyes from sagging. Pretty soon the eyebrows get up here around the hairline like that, you know. <laughs> look like this. Look, look at them. Can't even hardly shut their eyes. And, and they, they start pulling their chin up like that and pulling it up and pulling it up and cutting it like that until their ears start getting low on their head like this. They get low ears and high forehead, you know. And then their nose gets to pull tight over. And it just gets to looking pitiful. Come on, won't you look like an old lady so, so the grandkids can love you? you know? So they crawl up on your knee. You, you, rate, you, you teach your children how to respond to life and how to think about themselves by the way you think about yourself. Sin of youth. Intemperance. Listen to this. He says in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him, and bring him out unto the elders of the city, and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shall ye put away evil from among all Israel. And here. Now he calls stubborn and rebelliousness. The stubbornness and the rebelliousness is found in two things. He defined them there. Gluttony and drunkenness. The stubbornness and the rebellion is found in the gluttony and the drunkenness. Intemperance shows up first in food. If, you know, if you cannot fast for three days, you're totally intemperate. If you can't discipline yourself to go without food of any kind for three days, then you're going to be intemperate. Now, if you are intemperate and you want to break it, then fast for just three days. Go without any food at all for three days. And then sometime go five days without any food at all. Boy, that'll teach you that you don't have to have something to put in your mouth. That'll teach you that you can say no. And notice he links two sins, and this is not the only time in the Scripture they're linked is gluttony and drunkenness. The glutton with no self-control very easily becomes the drunkard. The woman who can't say no to food becomes a woman who can't say no to drugs. The man who cannot say no to, to foods, cannot say no to certain kinds of foods that are bad for him, is the man who cannot say no to a beer when he needs to relax, and to the second beer, and to the third beer. And finally, to the fourth beer, until he needs it every day to relax. Listen, if, you can, if, if they're not foods that you don't turn down because they're bad for your body, if you don't have enough self-control to say no 
to something greasy or something sweet to accept. Now, I'm not saying that uh, as a way of religion, there's nothing you can't eat. But I'll tell you what, America is killing itself with what it eats. People in this church, many of you are going to be sick prematurely because of what you're eating. Some of you men are going to have heart trouble by the time you're 45 years old and you may die from it. Some of you young men right now, strong and working hard because you eat grease and fat and sugars and starches and you just fill your body full of it and you're hardening your arteries right now. You're bringing yourself to death right now by your intemperance. You can't sit down to a meal and say, I won't eat that because today, because I, my, body doesn't, I, my body needs vegetables today. My body needs grains today. My body doesn't need any more of this fat and more of this sugar. Now, I'm not saying you can't come to a, and eat a little piece of pie or a little piece of cake, but you know when, you're, when you can't say no to the second or third piece of pie, when you can't say no to the, to the cake, when you just have to eat, you don't have any control over your body, when you can't say no to the, to the fat meats and stuff like that, when you just have to have it, you just have to eat it, you're intemperate. When you're intemperate, your children are going to be intemperate. The only thing, they're going to be a little more intemperate than you are. When you can't say no to cigarettes, smoking cigarettes, your kids are not going to be able to say no to smoking pot. When you can't say no to a beer, they won't be able to say no to whiskey. When you can't say no, they won't be able to say no to crack or cocaine. When you can't say no to the stuff you watch on television, they won't be able to say no to fornication and immorality. When you can't control your sexual drives in a little way, they won't control theirs at all. When they see any permissiveness in you, they're going to take that as a sign that there are no rules and there are no boundaries. And they'll go hog wild to hell with promiscuousness. The thing is, there are parents right here in this church, active, who have good kids right now. They're going to, you're going to weep one day at their ruin. And the seed of it right now is in your family and the way you're living. All right, one more. Vanity. Sins of youth, one of the great sins of youth is vanity. Now we've hinted at this a little bit. Vanity. Listen to what the scripture says. Ecclesiastes 11, 9 through 12, 1. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth while thy evil days come not nor thy years draw nigh when thou shalt say I have no pleasure in them. He said childhood and youth are vanity. Therefore he said remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days come. The evil days draw nigh when you say, I have no pleasure in the things of God now. If a child does not take pleasure in the things of God when he's five and six years old, he probably won't when he's 56 years old. If a child doesn't take pleasure in the things of God, if he lives a life of vanity, of idleness, of pleasure, of indulgence, of intemperance, when he gets older, he's not going to, see the, he's not going to have the fear of God in his life. He's not going to see the need to surrender to God and to walk in discipline and self-control. Because when those days come, he says, I have no pleasure in those things. His pleasure is in indulgence. 
Vanity. What is vanity? Vanity is the emptiness, the uselessness, the purposelessness of something. When you, when you dip one of those little uh, metal loops uh, down in this uh, cup of, of uh, detergent, and you blow on it, and you create this stream of bubbles. In the sunlight, sun shines through those bubbles, breaks them down into all kinds of beautiful colors, and they flow along. That's vanity. Not to play with that. I, played with them. I still like to play with them. I like to make bubbles, you know. But that, that bubble itself has no future. You know, there's no future in that bubble. You realize that? That bubble is going to float, and very quickly it's going to pop, and it's going to be gone. It was pretty for the moment. It was fun for the moment, but it's going to be gone. Those things that have no future in them are vanity. Those things which will not endure into eternity, that will not affect someone's life. You say, well, then why would you play with salt bubbles? Because when you've got a little kid, and you're doing that with that kid, and you're laughing, and the kid's laughing, and you're having fun with the kid, that's eternal. That's eternal. What, what, the way, when you're relating to that kid, enjoying those things, laughing, and you are tying strings of fellowship with that child that are going to cause that child, when you say to him or her later on, wash the dishes, carry out the garbage. They're going to carry out the garbage or wash the dishes without excessive griping or complaining, without having a bad attitude because of the soap bubbles you blew with them a little earlier on. See? So you say, well, what, what, isn't it vanity to stick a bathroom plunger to the side of a refrigerator? Yes, if that's all there was to it, it certainly would be vanity. There won't be anything in eternity. There won't be any bathroom plungers in heaven, and there won't be any refrigerators, and it's an ark that will be lost and forgotten, I'm sure, in the next generation. See? But the impact you make in the souls of other people, the, the pleasure that you take in the company of other people, in their laughter, in their pleasure, in their joy, all of that is eternal. And if you allow a child to indulge himself or herself, if you allow them to live a life of emptiness so that they're not producing anything positive, anything productive, they're not creating, they're just playing life away, eating life away, laughing life away, partying life away. When they get up 15 or 16, they'll just want to party. They just want to, watch, want to be entertained. When they get 20, 21 years old, they'll just get off from work and just entertain themselves. When they get 25 and they get married, they'll just want to entertain themselves. When their kids come along, they'll be living to entertain themselves. They'll be living a life of vanity. What they'll be doing, they'll be building a vain life, a vain home, vain cars, vain this and vain that. And they'll teach their children vanity. And then when their children get 15 or 16 years old, the children go to the way of the world and they go bigger in the world than the parents were. The parents say, where did I go wrong? I raised them right. I took them to church. I gave them, I fed them, I clothed them. I taught them right. Yes, and you live the life of vanity. Your children are walking in your footsteps. Only thing, they choose a, a little more exciting vanity than you chose. They choose a little more indulgent vanity than you chose. One of the great sins of youth is vanity. You know, when you, when you take a little girl and you give her Barbie dolls and you let her sit around and play with Barbie dolls and Barbie clothes, and you give them these little fancy uh, uh, going out to dinner costumes that they put on them, you know, and, and little primmed up hairdos, you know, like that, and painted all up and those big long legs, you know, and big bust, and, and you, you let them dress them up like that. You're teaching them what life is all about. 
you go down to the prison, go in some of the rooms, you know what you'll find? You'll find Barbie dolls standing there. The boys like them. And they don't spend any money on clothes or change of clothes. They like them. They really get off on Barbie dolls. So when you allow your girls to play with Barbie dolls, you're teaching them that's the kind of woman you need to be when you grow up. That's the kind of woman that is desirable. And that's exactly the kind of woman they'll be. If they're not, then they'll be very ineffective as the other kind. They'll be unhappy and miserable. They won't be able to relate to life and their husbands. Now, you, you might not like some of this. You might not agree with it, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm right. I'm right. I'm telling you the truth. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. If you don't agree with me, you're ignorant. You might be wicked. Because what I'm telling you is the truth. If you've got common sense, if you've got a spiritual mind, you would see that what I'm telling you is the truth. And when you, when you I, I hate to see some of you people take your little girls and dress them up in some of these little stuff you put them on too. I hate to see these little old girls all primped up and, and walking around, you know, and, and everybody talking about how pretty their dress is. Now, a little bit of that's all right, you know. But I've noticed some of these little kids coming on are learning to live a vain life. You know, they're learning to live a vain life. And it's going to go bad for them when they get older. Uh, I think we'll stop there. Uh, what do you think the next sin of youth would be? How about stubbornness? Have you ever seen any stubbornness in your little ones? You say, well, that's not sin. I guarantee you it's sin. One of the greatest sins of youth is stubbornness. Now, the problem is parents see stubbornness in a little one and they think it's cute because it shows, well, when the child's first born, he's, he or she is so out of touch with the world, you know, and then they, they start growing and showing responses and we're excited about that. We're excited about seeing them uh, relate to the world around them and begin to laugh or, or ask for something or show pleasure or whatever. Just show some light. And then they get up about six or seven months old and all of a sudden we see a stubborn streak. We see them put their foot down even though they're not walking on it yet. We see them, we see them make demands. And at first, it, well, it's kind of cute, you know. Look at that. Look at the little fellow. Why, he's got... He's strong-willed. We say that like we're proud of it. Like, boy, he's really going to amount to something. He's got a strong will. He'll probably be president. I doubt it. Now, stubbornness is sin. Listen to what the Scripture says about stubbornness. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. Stubbornness is as idolatry and witchcraft. Now, why is stubbornness like idolatry and witchcraft? Because stubbornness is when one sets his way because it's his way, and he refuses to come off of it because it's his way. And he clings to it for no other reason or no other purpose than it's his way. And it becomes very important to him not to give over because in somehow in his mind he identifies his own ego with that opinion that he holds at that point or that act or that intention. And to give over is to surrender his ego. It's to surrender his self because his self, his self-image now is tied in to this independence from society, this independence from parents, this independence from the rule of law. This, this is my position. I will stick to it because it's my position and I'll not give over. That's stubbornness. Now, I've heard parents, even in this church, speak of their children's stubbornness in a smiling way and say, oh, he's just strong-willed or she's just strong will that has absolutely nothing to do with strong will you see steadfastness one can have a strong what we call strong will and be steadfast in their endeavors that's not stubbornness faithfulness sticking with a job ministry a task that's not stubbornness endurance Enduring hardship and trials and the things that would stumble you and cause you to fail. Going on in spite. Endurance. That's not stubbornness. Perseverance is not stubbornness. Single-mindedness and commitment is not stubbornness. Stubbornness is refusal to regard reproof. Stubbornness is refusal to see it from the other man's perspective. Stubbornness is a decision to regard your own opinion regardless of what others say or what others feel or how others say that you are affecting them. That's stubbornness. Stubbornness, he said, is as rebellion. He says it's like the sin of witchcraft. Why? Witchcraft is putting God out of your life and giving yourself over to spirits to work evil. And folks, there's a kinship between stubbornness and witchcraft. Between rebellion, stubbornness, and witchcraft, they go together. There's nothing cute about a teenage girl who's stubborn. I say to my boys, the last thing in the world you want to do is marry a stubborn girl. Last thing in the world you want to do is marry a girl that's proud of her willpower. Because that has nothing to do with willpower. That's heart failure. That's not strength of will. That's weakness of soul. So that one is surrendered to his own passions and his own narrow-mindedness and unable to see life in a broad way from the standpoint of other people. That's not a strong will. That's a weak soul. Now, stubbornness is clinging to a bad idea simply because it's your idea and others are watching to see if you're going to give over. 
stubbornness is a spirit of nobody's going to tell me what to do. Now, when you see that in a year-and-a-half-old or two-year-old child, and in two or three of our children, I don't remember how many. It might have been two, it might have been one, it might have been four, but I think it's somewhere around two or three out of the... How many we got? Five? Two or three. Two or three of the kids out of five. <laughs> I really don't. I forget sometimes. Two or three of them out of five, when they got about two years old, decided that they were going to say no to some commandment. And we, I, I remember, I can only remember one event. I don't even remember which one it was, but I said, do this, no. I said, do it, no. And it, you know, it wasn't any big deal. And I got a switch and spanked him. And I said, well, you know, that fixed it. That settled it. It's okay now. It always had been. Do it, no. I thought, well, I'm amazed at that. Never seen anything like that before. And so I spanked, uh, I think it was a boy, I spanked him again. I said, now do it. No. You know, I had to spank that kid 15 or 20 times with a little talking in between times before he surrendered his will, and it took about 45 minutes. Now, that's amazing. Uh, it, was, it was like I, I dealt with devil possession. It was a whole lot like devil possession. It, w- it was like somebody being possessed with demons. It was, it was out of the ordinary. But I knew, instinctively, I knew, not having had a lot of experience yet, but I knew that if that child won, that I had lost that child's soul from that point on throughout all eternity. I knew that one single time of me giving over to that set stubbornness would allow that stubbornness to take a root in that child's soul. Rebellion would be born there that day and the seeds of witchcraft, and I'd lose that child to devil and to the hell if I let him go from that point. You say, you're overstating it. I'm a lot older now than I was then. And I've had more experiences than my own since that time. And I am not in the least overstating it. I've stood over parents whose three-year-old daughter was saying, no, I will not say I'm sorry. And I've watched that mother spank and spank and spank and spank and I've watched her give in, and I've watched that child grow to become an adult. And I've seen the rebellion in that life. I've watched parents who had a stubborn child and allowed that stubbornness to take root and seen it grow. And I've seen that child grow up to get married, become divorced, and get married again, and start to raise kids that are little demons. And started back there at a year and a half, are two years old in a stubborn streak that never got broken. Folks, one of the greatest sins of youth today is stubbornness, contrariness, independence, self-willed. Stubbornness is attempting to prove your worth by bucking the status quo. You see, that child wants to be independent, and that's natural. The child is supposed to be growing from a part of the mother's body that, whose heart beats from the mother's, who gets nourishment from the mother, who is at the mother's breast. That child is supposed to be growing from that stage to manhood, to independence. 
And it's a natural process. The only thing, there's enough rebellion in that child to decide at two years old he wants to make the transgression, trans, uh, transition from the nipple to the throne. He decides in one moment he's going to be grown up. In one moment he's going to decide all for himself and have no law higher than his own feelings. That's tragic because he's not equipped yet to do that. Now you might, if you let that stubbornness grow in that child, you might take a belt and beat him around with it the rest of his youth. You might whip him off of one thing and whip him off of another, and you might scare him and threaten him and intimidate him, and you might drive him around, but you're not breaking his stubbornness. All you're doing is bullying him into compliance. All you're doing is intimidating him into doing what you want, and you never really win his heart or break his will. He always is self-willed and stubborn, and you're always clashing with it. You're winning because you're bigger. You're winning because your will is stronger. You're winning because you're tougher. You're winning because you have the power to win. There'll come the day when you won't have the power to win. And when you don't, he'll laugh at you. He'll mock you. He'll ridicule you, and he may spit in your face, and he may slap you, and he'll walk out on you. And the cops will pick him up. Or his life will be ruined and destroyed. Stubbornness is one of the great sins of youth. And parent, if you don't break it, you're wasting your time. Because you're a trainer of an evil man if you don't break that stubbornness. You say, well, it's pretty well broken. There's no such thing. You cannot pretty well break stubbornness. It's either all gone or it's all there. A child's life is either under his control or it's under yours. You can't measure surrender by the number of times that a child obeys you. You measure surrender by the time that he won't. You don't measure, you don't measure allegiance by the times that that child conforms to your will. You measure it by that one time that he says no and won't. That's showing where his heart is. Now you see... Even in the military, even in the military, a man is going to comply with his sergeant when he doesn't want to. He's going to go along with a lot of things, but that sergeant doesn't have his heart. He's going to mock, ridicule, and maybe burn an effigy of that sergeant on Friday night somewhere. His heart is not won over. And if that's the relationship that you have to your child, that you're the sergeant and he's the peon, and while you're watching and giving commands, he obeys, and you haven't broke the stubbornness in his heart and caused him to walk in yielding a yielded spirit to you, then you have a child that you have lost to the world. Now, I'm not overstating this. Parents, if you've got a two-year-old that's rebellious, you've lost that child. If he's stubborn, you have lost him now. It's a, it, the question is, will you ever get him back? The next month is the best time to do it. If you don't, then it'll be twice as hard the following month. If you wait till he's four years old, you may have a task you're not able to do. If you wait until he's eight or nine, it's too late. All you can do is play sergeant. He needs a sergeant. Granted, that'll help. But that child is going to have to get saved and learn to submit himself to God and walk in discipline before God if you've waited that long to break stubbornness and rebellion. 
A stubborn child is a child that will not yield to authority, seeks to maintain control. Some people, okay, let me say this, a strong will is not like strong muscles or strong mind or strong constitution. A strong will is like strong rebellion, strong selfishness, and strong hate. Stubbornness in the face of wisdom is pride. Conceive of it. Here is a child, 10 years old, that thinks he knows more than daddy does. Thinks he knows more than mama. Thinks he knows more than the other adults around him, especially when there's a consensus from the adults around him. Saying, that's not the way to go. And the kid says, but that's the way I'm going to go. That's the way I'm going to go. That's great pride. Stubbornness. A stubborn person values his autonomy more than the rule of law. You realize that was the sin of Eve? To value her autonomy more than the rule of law? Satan told her that if she ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that she would be like the gods knowing good and evil. And God said, don't eat it. In the day you do thereof, you'll surely die. And Eve, Eve didn't believe God. What pride. Eve wanted her autonomy. She wanted to be no good and evil apart from God. Stubbornness is that set of heart and mind to pursue your course against wisdom, against counsel, against judgment of others who should know better. Now you say, but they don't know better. Let's take it further. The Bible has placed us under the rule of law, this government, and we're to obey it even when it's not just. There are things we have to do that we don't think are right. And we're not talking about moral wrongness here. But there are things we have to do that are not right. But we do them anyhow because of the rule of law that we're under. And God placed young people under the rule of law of their parents. And the Bible never told you as a child to make a judgment about the wisdom of your parents' judgment. You are to obey your parents. That'll be the last one we deal with, not today, but we'll get to it. You're to obey your parents. And there's virtue in obeying your parents even when they're wrong. If you're a stubborn child, even if your parents are wrong, it's still the sin of witchcraft. A person who's stubborn is not led by wisdom. They're led by their spirit, which is a bad spirit. A person who's stubborn seeks his own way regardless of the needs of others. You know, it's, it's like, uh, I mean, I, I despise cigarette smoke, especially when I eat. I, I cannot eat in a restaurant where I'm smelling cigarette smoke. It's just totally nauseating to me, you know. It would be, it, to me, that's equal to opening the bathroom door and the commode's unflushed. I mean, it's just as bad. I cannot continue my meal. I have to leave. I cannot, I cannot tolerate it. I cannot ride in the vehicle with somebody else smoking. If it's the dead of winter, I'm going to roll the ones down and stick my head out. I've done that. So that makes people cold. I don't care. See? You say, but they, they have a right to be warm. I have a right to smell God's air. Amen. You know? 
And when, when you decide that you are going to smoke in a room with other people because you have that right, you're being stubborn. You follow me? When you decide that you're going to drive on this road the way you want to drive because you know you can drive safely and you can avoid any collision, but it's scaring other people, that's stubbornness. When you've been told by the leaders in the church here that you are not to play volleyball down here with your shirts off, men, and you decide because you think it's all right, we've told you there are women in this church, married women in this church, who have to deal with lust towards some of you young boys when your shirts are off. You say, they're kinky. No, they're not. They're normal. Thank God somebody's married to a woman that's got that kind of drive. That's better than being married to a milk jug. And we tell you that, and you say, well, I just don't believe that. So I'm going to take my shirt off when I play volleyball. That's sin of witchcraft. That's stubbornness. That's rebellion. Why, it wasn't a week ago I drove up down here. My wife and I and four fellows ran to get the shirts when they saw us coming. Now, it didn't bother them that there were young girls that just walked off from the volleyball court. They liked the young girls looking at the three hairs on their chest. And you know what's sick? If somebody, a fellow, put a little gold chain on him and take his shirt off. That's a disease. You didn't learn that from God or the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine Jesus Christ walking around with his shirt off and a little gold chain around his neck? We're talking about queers now. Some of you guys are practicing being a queer. You know? And wisdom, people with wisdom tell you that. They tell you that's sick. That's, that's bothering other people. You're transgressing. Your cigarette smoke is going up their noses. You're causing them... Pro that's their problem. No, it's your problem. You're the one that's stubborn, refusing to give over. You see, it's no problem. I don't care if you smoke. In fact, I would vote against any law that forbids smoking in this country. I would vote against anyone who said they were going to get in office and, and put a higher taxes on cigarettes. I don't believe in it. I stand with Rush Limbaugh on it. I think a man's got a right to smoke, got a right to drink, got a right to do marijuana, got a right to do anything he wants to do as long as it doesn't bother me or society or endanger anyone's life or hurt, hurt anybody economically. As long as there's no problem with the rest of society, he has a right to go to hell any way he wants to go. Pollute his body, kill himself, anything he wants to do, blow his mind. As long as when he gets out of work, you don't give him any welfare. You know? As long as when he gets cancer, you don't pay for his treatment. As long as you just leave him alone, let him do what he wants to do, take care of his own needs. That's baseline. I'm all for that. So I'm all for that liberty. But I'll tell you what, I'm not for you exercising your liberty so that somebody else's liberty ceases. And when you take your shirt off or you wear shorts or you dress immorally, you are transgressing on somebody else's liberty to think clearly. You're transgressing on someone else's liberty to have a pure mind and heart. Do you hear me? 
Now, the next time, I started to do it this morning, the next time I see some of the fellows dressed immorally, or the girls, I'm going to name them here on Sunday morning. I may write their names on a big piece of paper right up here on the wall. I'm a prophet. I'm called to rebuke sin. I'm called to expose it, called to expose it. And I'm going to expose it. You say, you're trying to push your convictions on us. No, I'm not trying to push my convictions on you. You can have any kind of conviction you want. Just don't come around here dressed immoral. I'm not worried about your convictions. I'm worried about how you're affecting other people. And while you're on this property, you'll dress right. Now, you see, parents, you didn't break that in them when they were young. That's the reason they're stubborn now. It's just natural to be stubborn. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's part of Adam and, Adam and Eve were before they were sinners. It's part of humanity to be self-willed, to seek our own way. I mean, I have to fight it. I have to deal with it. And you do too. But let's not make it a doctrine to, to admit stubbornness. Let's not, make it, let's not make it a permissible way of life. Let's not excuse it. All right, here's some verses. Proverbs 1, 24 through 26. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you've set it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I'll laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when your fear cometh. That's God that said that. God said, I told you, I warned you, and you didn't listen. When it happens, I'm going to laugh at you. Now, I'm not saying that. I, I just couldn't do it. I'm not in a position to do that. But, you know, some of you young people are going to come to calamity. They're going to call one day and say, he's down here, his neck is broken. They're going to call someday and say that. That's right. One day you're going to come and say, I've got this baby, I'm pregnant, what should I do? One day you're, some of you are going to come and say, I've lost my job. I don't know where to go next. Your calamity is going to come. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool despiseth his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof is prudent. A fool despiseth his father's instruction. Why do fathers instruct their kids? Is it because they're <laughs> mad at them? Do fathers tell their kids things because they want to hurt them or make them miserable? Why do fathers tell their kids things? Think about it, kids. What's your father got against you? What's your mother got against you that she tells you these things that you ought to do or ought not do? What have I got against you? What do I care? My life is busy. What do I care? I care for your soul. I care for the soul of others. Your parents cares for your soul. They care for your happiness. They care for your welfare. They see some pitfalls that you can't see yet. You haven't got all your eyesight yet. You haven't matured yet. You see, I was a teenager one time, and I got over it. I had the disease. And I was sick, you know. And... I, I survived it barely. I got inoculated, and I have a resistance to it now. Amen. And some of you don't have you don't have any resistance to it yet, and it's bringing you down. And so your parents are warning you. Why? Because they care. That's all. Now, sometimes we don't do it maybe right. We don't do it patiently, or maybe we don't do it wisely, or maybe we don't do it with enough compassion. Maybe sometimes parents get angry. Sometimes they get frustrated and come apart, but they got a reason, you know. They just, it's because they don't feel like they, 
they, they feel out of control. They feel desperate. They feel threatened. They see their kid going off the precipice, and they run out and do things that a diplomat wouldn't do. Just say it in a way a diplomat wouldn't say it because they care. That's all. Think about it. Young people, obey your parents. And then uh, we read uh, Proverbs 29.1, 9, He that being often reproved hardened his heart shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Psalm 78.8, And might not be as their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. He said, Don't be like your fathers were. And then in Proverbs 7.11, it speaks of a woman who says, She's loud and stubborn, and her feet abide not in her house. Mothers, your daughters can learn stubbornness from you. In fact, if you're stubborn toward your husband, toward his rule, if you're stubborn toward the church, toward the pastor, toward the word of God, toward the rule of law, if you're stubborn at home, you cannot but help have stubborn children. They will, they will definitely be stubborn. Because being a human, they're inclined that way anyhow. See? And it's like weeds coming up in the garden. You hoe them, you plow them, you pause them, you do something or you're going to have weeds. And in this world, in this body, in this flesh, in this humanity, we're going to be stubborn. Unless it's worked out of us through wisdom or chastisement or something else. Your kid's going to be stubborn. And if you're stubborn, there's no way you can stop it. There's no way you can prevent it from developing in them because not only now are they inclined to it on their own, but they also have a good example of it, which makes it all right, makes it permissible, regardless of what the pastor says then, regardless of what the preacher says, if they've got an example of it at home. Stubbornness. Uh, you know, on the job, when you've got men working, you've got six men working, and one of them is stubborn and wants to do it his way, it stops the other five from being effective workers. It stops the whole job from progressing when you've got one man on the job that's stubborn. When the boss tries to tell him something and he tries to tell the boss back how it ought to be done. You know what you've got to do? You've got to fire a stubborn man on the job. You've got to. You've got to fire him. Otherwise, it'll wreck your job that you're doing. It'll wreck the other man. It'll destroy the morale that's going on. In an office, it's that way. If you've got somebody working in an office that says this is the way it ought to be done and the boss says it ought to be done that way and that person stubbornly determines to do it their way, that person has got to go. They've got to go. It's that way in the church. It's that way in life. All right, now the, the second sin. We won't have too long, but we'll deal with this in about 10 minutes here. Uh, great sin of youth is scorning. Or ridiculing, scorning. We call scorning is what it is. What is scorning? Scorning is ridiculing. Scorning is mocking. Scorning is deriding. Scorning. I see. You know, when we play volleyball out here, there's hardly well sometimes, but there occasionally. Let's say occasionally. There are occasionally times that I see some people scorning out there on the volleyball court. See, on the volleyball court, it's not like being here in the church house. You get relaxed and you get all the rest of the game, and you forget about how you're supposed to act. You really do. You forget about how a Christian is supposed to act, and you don't, you don't, you're not thinking, I'm a Christian. You're not thinking, other people are looking. You're not thinking, how is this that I'm supposed to respond to this? All you're thinking is, that stupid jerk. 
And so you're likely to say what you're thinking. You're likely to reveal your heart. It's a wonderful tool, the volleyball court. New Transmissions, one of the, one of the centers, uh, centers of their training program for missionaries is volleyball. It is. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it, it's a control, and in their boot camps, it's part of their training program for missionaries. They make everybody play, whether you can play good or not. And they, they get you out there, and they have you playing volleyball, and they give you all these rules you've got to play by, and then they watch you, man. And it wasn't much fun playing volleyball, I can tell you that. But, but it's part of the training. Why? Because on the volleyball court, you're going to find out what people are made out of. You're going to find these people with pity parties, you know, these people that, I'm going to go home if you won't play with me. I'm going to go home if you treat me like that. Then you have these people, go ahead, get, get on home. We don't want you here anyhow. I mean, you've got all kinds, see? And it's going to come out, whatever you are. And I hear scorning on the volleyball court. Mocking and ridiculing. Oh, man, it, it just jumps out. Public schools are full of scorning. I mean, it's just, they're built around scorning. They're held together with a glue of scorning. If you could abolish all the scorning in the public schools, they'd just all fall apart into rubble. I mean, they're held together with scorning. The curriculum, the classrooms, the, uh, the, everything they do is built around scornful attitudes, ridiculing, mocking, derisive all the time. To scorn is to speak of someone or of something said as if it were ridiculous, to cast it aside as less than worthless, to treat it as absurd, to make light of it. Now, there's it's one thing, humor. Humor is one thing when everybody thinks it's funny, including the other person. But when the other person doesn't think it's funny, when you say something and it casts that other person aside as ridiculous, as absurd, and, and they feel belittled by it, they feel smaller because of it. They feel unworthy. They feel unaccepted because of it. Then that's sin. Now, how many times do we see little kids, five-year-old scorning his three-year-old sister? You know? Or seven-year-old scorning the two-year-old? Mothers, that's got to stop. That has to stop completely, altogether, and forever. You can't have that ever in the home. If those children are going to be raised up to be balanced human beings, emotionally sound, then you've got to stop the scorning, the ridiculing, the mocking. That's bitter, that's cruel, that's ugly in the spirit. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. It's interesting the posture he gives the scornful. The scornful are sitting in a seat, scorning. Quite often, scorners are sideline people. Quite often, scorners are observers. And they sit in their seat, and it becomes like a, an office for them. This seat, this place of residence, where they look out and scorn others. Proverbs nine twelve: If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself, but if thou scornest, Thou shalt bear it. But if you're wise, it's going to turn back on you and bless you. But if you're a scorner, you're going to bear that too. So you're going to reap the fruit of whatever you are. And then Proverbs 13, 1, A wise son heareth his father's instructions, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. A scorner heareth not rebuke. Proverbs 15, 12, A scorner loveth no one that approveth him. 
neither will he go unto the wise. That's a mark of a scorner. He doesn't love the person that reproves him, and he will not go to a wise person. And if you speak to the scorner and rebuke him, he'll turn around and scorn your rebuke. I've been scorned right here in the church by rebukes I've given. Not to my face, but it's come back to me. I've been scorned and ridiculed and laughed at. That doesn't bother me. I'm too busy that bothers me, but it bothers me that you're in that condition. I mean, I've, I've preached out on the street where they've called me every name there is to call anybody. I mean, I've done a lot. And uh, going to prisons and stuff, going into homes. And uh, a long time ago, I got anesthetized to anybody saying anything off the wall to me. But I sure hate to see that in you. And then he says, Proverbs 9, 8, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Proverbs 1, 22, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity, and ye scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. He said, How long, scorner, are you going to keep on doing that and hating knowledge? Proverbs 31, 13, 1, A wise son heareth his father's instructions, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. Deuteronomy 27, 16, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. All the people should say, Amen. <laughs> he said, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father and mother. What does that mean, set light by your father and mother? That means your father and mother tells you you can or can't do something. You go out and they say, Well, can you go? And you say, Nah, my mama said, and she did this. And my dad, you know, you're setting light by your father and mother. You're scorning them. You're treating as frivolous, as empty, as vain what they said. That's scorning. When your mama says you can't do it, and you said, no, she's just in a bad mood today. Oh, you're a scorner. That's scorning. No, my daddy doesn't want me to have any fun. That's scorning. My kids have come to me, and some of the other kids in the church have said to my kids on more than one occasion, have said to them, your parents don't ever let you have any fun. Oh, we didn't invite you. We knew they wouldn't let you go. Well, of course we wouldn't. But you scorned me. You scorn me. I know who you are. You scorn me. To my kids, you scorn me. You're playing the fool. When you set light by my kids' parents, by commandments they give their children, by the way we're raising our kids, when you set light by it, then you're a fool. And one day you're going to come to me in pieces. I hope not. But it's a Evil, wicked thing to be a scorner. Proverbs, um, Deuteronomy 27, 16, curse it. got that one. Proverbs 19, 27, the last one, through 29. He that wasteth his father and chaseth away his mother. Wasteth his father and chaseth, chaseth away his mother. How do you waste your father? You know, a scorning, ungodly son or daughter will waste away a father, chase away a mother. Is a son that causes shame and bringeth reproach. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causes to err from words of knowledge. An ungodly witness scorneth judgment, and the mouth of the wicked devoureth iniquity. Judgments are prepared for scorners, and stripes for the backs of fools. 
So he says this scorning, scorning son or scorning daughter wastes away a father and chases away a mother. And he said that stripes are set aside for the backs of that kind of fool. Young people, don't try to grow up too quick. Don't try to take charge of your life and decide you know better than pastors, elders, church leaders, father, mother, and the vast opinion of the rest of the world, basically. Don't think that you know better. And if you do know better, wait until you're old to prove it. It'll show up in time. In time, you'll have your chance. You'll have your chance one day to exemplify all the great virtues you stand for. Right now, just submit to authority, to wisdom. Go along with what others who've gone down the trail before you have said and what they teach. Go along with what your parents say. Do it with a good spirit. Don't scorn them. Don't mock them when they tell you to do something. Don't mock other people's parents. Learn to be in subjection. The Bible said if you do, you'll live. If you don't honor your father and mother, God's going to shorten the days of your life. So don't be in a hurry because there's protection under their wisdom and their authority. The only thing that you're going to miss by submitting is a moment of immediate gratification and pleasure. And that's the only reason you've got to rebel against them. The only reason you've got to rebel against your parents is that they're keeping you from some immediate gratification or pleasure. Now, who are you? what is your soul made out of? If you give yourself over to gratification and pleasure and turn your back and scorn and mock the parents that gave you birth, what is your soul? What is the constitution of your soul? If you turn your backs on your parents or laugh at them or mock them or sneak around and lie to them, what is the constitution of your soul? Don't you see that you're walking the devil's path of darkness and rebellion? Repent before God. Put yourself under your parents' authority. Now, none of us ever get out from under authority. Even if you're an adult, you're under authority of the church. Wives are under authorities of husbands. Husbands are under authority of elders and God and people at work and government and so forth. We're all under authority to each other. And there's no place for scorning for any of us. All right, I'm going to stop there. Now, I know I've been hard on you. But uh, I'd rather teach the book of Romans or Hebrews, something verse by verse. But I think we need this. I think, I think we need dressing down occasionally, exposing. And uh, now you probably won't get this again for five or ten years if I'm here that long. You're here that long, something like. I won't get it for five or ten years. So if it doesn't take now, you just missed your opportunity. Don't expect me to keep pounding it and hammering it until it gets in. We've got about one more or two more of these sins of youth, and then we're going to go to something else. So if God's going to change your life, if you're going to see it and face up to it, now's the time to do it.
Father, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you for your spirit and your grace. And God, we pray that you'll bring conviction, that you'll bring us all to repentance where we need to. And God, we'll walk in humility and grace toward a fellow man, children toward the parents, that parents will discipline, train their children. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Reverence for God, but a reverence for, for people, for parents, for things that matter, for things that count. Foolishness often is very fun-loving. Foolishness often is very happy-go-lucky. Foolishness often is, is a big frolic, you know, a great big time. But it walks on other people's feelings. That foolishness ignores the needs of others. Foolishness ignores the spirit and mood of the hour. You know what I mean? It just, it's just there. And foolishness is, is prideful, self-centered. It dominates time and other people's time and their, their attention. Now he says in Proverbs fifteen fourteen. The heart of him that hath understanding seeketh knowledge, but the mouth of fools feedeth on foolishness. Now, the mouth, when you look at the scripture on this subject, the mouth seems to be the heart of foolishness. In other words, it's, it's more in what you say than anything else. Foolishness is found more in your words even than your actions. So much so that he says, in Proverbs 12:33, a prudent man concealeth knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaimeth foolishness. That is, the fool is just always speaking out his foolishness. In Proverbs 18:7, fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. A fool's lips are the snare of his soul. In other words, his lips or what brings his soul into bondage and into destruction. Then he says, Proverbs 17, 28, Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. So foolishness so much centers in words that he says if a fool will keep his mouth shut, he won't appear to be a fool any longer. If a fool keeps his mouth shut, someone might say, boy, isn't he wise? <laughs> so foolishness is centered in the lips, in the speaking. And uh, sometimes you see five or six years old, old kids, they're just absolutely packed full of saying stupid and foolish things. Now, parents, how do you counter that? How do you deal with that? How do you stop that foolishness? Well, now, Several things can contribute to it. Remember, it comes from a spirit and a heart, not just from a mouth. The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. First of all, a child's temperament is a reflection of the pot he's grounded in. And children are grounded in the pot of the family. They draw their life from the nourishment of the parents and that home life. So a child is the product of the people he lives with. Now, if, if you send him to a babysitter, then he's going to be a product of the babysitter. You send him to a daycare center, then he's going to be a product of the... All you do is you take the sum total of each kid there and each adult, you put that all together and you divide by the total number of people involved and that's the influence that the kid's got. Whatever is 
the average, the common there in the daycare center or public school or wherever they are. But normally children, especially our children, spend most of their time with their parents. And so children are going to be a product of the parents. Now, if a child is insecure, if a child's insecure and unloved, in other words, if the parents are fighting and fussing and they're angry and stuff, then that child may start acting foolish in order to get attention. The parents may not be foolish. They may be quite sober. But it's the child's way of coping and relating who gets foolish. Or a parents may be themselves lack sobriety. Of course, that's going to reflect in foolishness. All right, the, that the mouth was the first area of manifestation of foolishness. The second thing we see in foolishness is a fool hates to be instructed. Absolutely hates to be instructed. Proverbs 15, 5 said, A fool despiseth his father's instructions, but he that regardeth reproof is prudent. A fool does not like to be told what to do. You can, you can see it in a little child. A parent will tell him to do something, and the kid will pull away like this. Push away. And turn his face down like that and make a little face. He's a little fool. He thinks that he has control of his own life. Now, he didn't get that way. He wasn't born that way. That little fool was made that way by the inconsistencies of the parent. And then he says, Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool does not fear God. The fool does not fear God or fear coming judgment. Now, again, the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 15, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but... The rod of correct, correction shall drive it far from him. Now, what is that telling us? A child doesn't have fear of God. He doesn't have fear of consequences. But the parent can teach the child fear of God and fear of consequences. How? With the rod. Now, all things have to be equal here. The parent can be himself foolish or inconsistent or angry, and the rod won't work. It'll work the opposite if the parent is bitter or cruel or selfish, uh, then the use of the rod will not be effective. But if the parent has a pure heart, has a good, clean spirit, has love towards that child, then the application of the rod will bring fear. And I guarantee you, it immediately stops foolishness. In other words, the rod immediately dries up any foolishness. All the giddiness and the fun-loving disappears. All the mock and the ridicule and the scoffing and the scorning and the clowning and all that just goes away immediately when you apply the rod. There's no foolishness at that point. And you can bring sobriety to a child very quickly with the use of the rod. Now, that I don't want to indicate that there's going to be excessive a lot of spanking here. Now, some parents who have very foolish kids just listening to me think, well, I'd be spanking them every five minutes. The thing is, the rod works. So you can quit spanking them after a point. The thing is, the application of the rod properly applied with the proper attitude yeah. is going to stop that foolishness and root it out so it's no longer there. Folks, if the application of the rod is not bringing a change, then you should just stop using the rod. You're just being abusive. Right. If the rod is not working, if it doesn't work, then something else is not equal. Quit depending on the rod and go back and get other things right. But where all things are equal in the home and proper, then the rod has an amazing ability. And then he says in Proverbs 1.22, How long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity and you scorners 
delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Fools won't stay quite long enough to learn anything. Foolish teenagers won't listen to other people. They think they know, it, know everything. They think they're the smartest people on there. They think that everyone else is an old fogey or a dud, you know, that they don't understand what life is all about. And I know I was there one time. And uh, fools hate instruction. They hate knowledge. They don't want to learn anything. And you, you try to tell them something, and they think that, that you're conning them or, or something instead of <laughs> giving them something that's going to be helpful. And that's a fool, you know. I've got a friend who uh, jumped off of a bridge into uh, the water down below. His friends were explaining to him that there was water down there, but it was only shallow water. But he jumped 32 feet into six inches of water. It destroyed both legs. Took him a long time to pin him back together. That's a fool. Uh, there, there's people even in our community who jumped off bridges into shallow water and broken their neck, and you can see them sitting in a wheelchair when you drive by now. Young man, what was he, about 19 years old? Kids get out and they drive like crazy. That's grown-up foolishness, you know? And, and, and they handle guns carelessly. And... They handle sex carelessly, and they listen to the radio carelessly, and they get involved in personal relationships carelessly, and their whole life is one of foolishness. And you know that they, they, they hate knowledge, they hate instruction, they hate being told what to do, and they're going to go out and have fun, they're going to enjoy life, they're going to do their life their way, and they're going to end up in destruction. Fools hate knowledge. And then the third mark of a foolish child is empty thoughts. Just empty brain. Just a brain devoid of intelligent, creative thoughts. Psalm 92, 5 and 6. O Lord, how great are thy works. And thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knoweth not. Neither doth a fool understand this. Fool doesn't think great thoughts. Fool doesn't have a great vision. See? A fool doesn't have a great vision for the future, for great things. If he does, it's, it's an imagination, like comic book imagination. It's not serious endeavor. I mean, I've heard fools prat on about all the great things they were going to do in life but everyone knows and they know that nothing, they're not going to ever do anything great. Their thoughts are empty and vain. They're full of Hollywood and, and, and computer games, but there's no really solid foundation in their soul. They're empty-headed, empty-brained. He says, the fool doesn't think these thoughts about God. Remember the, the, what we read, O oh Lord, how great are thy works, thy thoughts are very deep. But he says, neither does a fool understand this. Fool doesn't think on the things of God and on eternity. He doesn't think on building his life and planning for the future for eternity. A fool lives for today. Fool gets turned on, he's got to be satisfied. Fool gets hungry, he's got to eat. Fool gets angry, he's going to blow off. Fool is selfish and he wants it. 
A fool wants to do something and he does it. No deep thoughts. A fool. And then he says, this, this is in Psalm 92, 5 and 6. Excuse me. It's in Proverbs 14, 8 and 9. The fourth mark of a fool is they mock sin. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there's favor. Fools make a mock at sin. When you rebuke a fool, the Bible said you, you become a fool with them. You know? When you rebuke a fool, fool fool's going to mock your rebuke. Fool's going to mock wisdom. When you tell a small child, don't do that, you'll get hurt. They don't believe they'll get hurt. When you tell a small child, that's dangerous, they don't believe that's dangerous. When you tell a small child, you know, if you keep doing that, I'm going to spank you, they'll just keep on doing it. Fools make a mock at sin. You get an older fool, and he laughs. You rebuke him, and he laughs when you tell him that that's sinful, that's wicked. When you tell a young girl fool, you ought not dress that way because that's provocative to men. They'll say, well, that's their problem. They make a mock at sin. Why? That's, that's, there's something they need to get straightened out. They're making a mock at sin. When you tell a young fool, you ought not watch that kind of stuff. That poisons your mind. That'll ruin your marriage to watch that sort of stuff in TVs and videos. Huh? They make a mock at sin. And you see their life begin to erode. You see them become sexually impure. You see it begin to twist their mind. When you tell a young fool, you shouldn't listen to that country music. They'll turn it on and listen to it anyhow, and they'll mock you. They'll say, oh, you like that old fogey music. You like that old dumb gospel music. I admit country music is a lot better quality than gospel music. Ten times better than gospel music. And folks, I can suffer through very poor quality to get a little bit of Jesus than to get high quality sin. I read an article just this past week. They, they did an experiment with music. You notice how when you go in a store, they've got music playing everywhere you go. You know, Christmas time, the malls are playing. Jingle bells, jingle. I'm dreaming of a white. And you hear all this stuff. What's all that in there for? What's that? To make you buy. Make you buy. You notice all the commercials have music background? Why is there? It's make you buy. So it won't work. It won't work. It won't make you buy anything. It not affect me anyhow, anyway. Uh, they did some experiments. They took grocery stores and they played different kinds of music and with their computers checked to see what was selling. For instance, they played German uh, beer hall music and German beer outsold French wines two to one. Then they played French music and French wine outsold German beer ten to one. <laughs> and they asked customers going out who bought one or the other, why did you buy that? Well, I like it, you know. What about the music? What music? They, they didn't know they were listening to certain different kinds of music, but they'd switch that thing back and forth. And depends on what kind of music they play, it affected people in what they bought. And in many other experiments they took, affected people the way they made purchases. So it's a science. There are organizations who sell music tapes 
to businesses to increase their business flow. There is music prepared for workplace. You listen, stuff you listen to at work is easy listening stuff. That music I read, they have a certain style and kind early in the morning, middle of the morning, right before dinner, after dinner, middle of the afternoon, and late in order to increase productivity. And they found by playing that music properly that they can increase productivity 20, 30, 40 percent over what if they didn't play any music at all or if they played it without, in random without in, any control. At the points when they feel like that people are going to be a little bit droopy and a little bit tired and a little bit lazy, they play more stimulating music to get them hyped up. When, they, when the people first get there and they're hyped up, they play calm music to get them calmed down, you know. And, and then right before the time to get off work when product, productivity really plunges, then they give them a, a jolt of, um, of uh, adrenaline with the music, say. Yeah. They get, them, get something out of them those last few hours. And, folks, it really works. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, millions of dollars every year goes into the production and of music and the placement of that music in the marketplace in order to stimulate you and control you. Shad Williams used to be a musician, rock, blues musician. And here's what he said to me. He said, my job was to provoke the people to sexual lust and provide opportunity for fornication. He said, that was my job. He played in night spots where people came and ate little dinners and drank their beer and listened to the music. And he knew that most of them came there with intentions of fornicating before the night was out. And they brought their girlfriend there to listen to the music because it worked. And when you turn your radio on and listen to that, and adults say, you shouldn't listen to that kind of music, that affects your soul. And you mock at that. Yeah. You're a stupid fool. Right. Now, they didn't get that overnight. They started when they were young. They mock at sin. Then, fools are fun-loving mischief makers. Proverbs 10, 23. It is as a sport to a fool to do mischief. But a man of understanding has wisdom. It's a sport. In other words, it's, we're just having fun. Hey, this is, we don't mean anything by it. It's just a, it's a gag. It's a sport. It's a sport to a fool to do mischief. What do you mean by a sport to do mischief? Well, a fool, for instance, will go out and mess up somebody's automobile. Makes them uncomfortable. So we're just having fun. And the fellow comes out and he's got paint all over his automobile or he's got a potato up the exhaust pipe or uh, he's got some kind of bad odor sprayed inside or something else done to his car. That's just a fool, see. Waste of time, waste of energy. That person's not having any fun. You're having fun at somebody else's expense. That's a fool that makes mischief. I mean, uh, weddings disgust me what people do. A couple's getting married, you know. And the last thing in the world they want is a lot of confusion, a lot of things getting in their way, and a lot of people bothering them. And it's a fool that wants to get in the middle of that and become the center of attention and affect those people in some way, in a negative way. There's no place in that in a Christian wedding. When we have a wedding here, there won't be any 
throwing rice around and, and uh, tying stuff to people's cars. And now, if you want to paint on the car and they like that and they want to go show it off, ask them, can we paint on your car? Can we take soap or wash off paint? Can we put just married? Uh, can we do that? And if they like that, they like it fine. But if they don't like that, then lay off, you know? Yeah. And uh, going to their house to visit them after they get married and uh, knocking around outside and all. I mean, that's, are you doing that for their pleasure? That, now I'm not just concerned about that one event, but that's just something that came to my mind. It's a fool's mentality that has pleasure in that kind of mischief. In camps, Christian camps, young people like to, like Shalom was this past week, they had to have uh, grown men, counselors, step all night long, every night, and walk around with a flashlight policing the campground. The sad thing is, it's not the campers, it's often the counselors. And one of the counselors came in and was bragging uh, that it was going to be the next week, Shalom was going out and this camper was a counselor was coming in she was bragging how last year she got out and walked around it during the night time how they caught her but they had to have her back because they couldn't get enough counselors so she's back she's planning another foray this time that's foolishness i'd never marry a girl that did something like that a girl that lacked so much sobriety that she wouldn't follow the rules in a christian camp where she would get up and go out and piddle around and puddle around during the night and sneak around and carry on a lot of nonsense would not be the kind of woman I'd want for to be the wife of my kids. And girls, you think of it. If you've got a young fellow who's that kind of a silly fool, who in a Christian camp where the purpose is to bring people to Christ, to communicate the gospel, and he's going to distract from that purpose, and be sleepy in the meeting, and have other people sleepy in the meeting the following night. Why? Because he's been out doing foolishness. He's an empty-headed fool. Fun-loving mischief makers. Parents, when you have two little kids, six, seven years old, and you see one of them being a fun-loving mischief maker like that, you need to break that out of him. You need to break that. He wants to get out and wrestle with the fellas. That's fine. I encourage it. I get out and laugh at them, sick them, you know, go for it, boys. If they want to get out and, and swing from one tree to another and fall, that's fine. If they don't get out and run their bicycle over a ditch, try to jump it, that's great. I love that, you know. They want to get out and dig holes and wrestle and even have a boxing match. It won't bother me any. I love it. But when a little boy starts picking on a little girl and she's whining and he's picking, you know, and and uh, they start playing the practical jokes that are not, not funny to anybody but them, and they start that kind of foolishness, that mischief-making. Yeah. You need to break that out of them. It's not funny. Sometimes it's funny, and that's the bad thing about it, but you'll need to break it out of them just the same. Yeah. All right? Then uh, fools uh, bring uh, affliction upon themselves. Psalm 107:17 said, Fools, because of their transgression, because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Well, there's a lot of people in a fool chair, uh, wheelchair because they're fools. They'll be there all their life just because they're fools. There's a lot of blinded people that are blinded because they're fools. A lot of, a lot of lame people, a lot of people with their brains half gone because they're fools. Somebody's changing their diaper because they're fools. A lot of people laid up in the hospital because they were fools. You know, accidents don't just happen, they're planned. They're planned. 
If you, if you don't walk as a fool, your chances are 1% of what other people's are of being seriously hurt. Fools bring stuff upon themselves, usually when they're laughing, often in an automobile. And then a foolishness affects the parents. Proverbs 10.1 says, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. The father is glad when the son is wise, but when the son is a fool, then the mother is the one who suffers from it the most. Proverbs 15.20, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. So when he grows up, he despises his mother. His mother gets it both ways. When he's a young fool, her heart is heavy from it. When he grows up, he despises her. Now, why would the fool despise his mother? After all, didn't she love him? Didn't she grieve for him? Yes. Mother, if you don't work the foolishness out of your son, he'll despise you when he gets older. Now, prevention of foolishness. Again, we come to the verse, Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Foolishness can be stopped when you as a parent take control. You're the one who makes judgments. You're the one whose responses dictate to that child what's acceptable and what's not. If you become firm and consistent and become an overseer and watch that child and say, no, stop, sit down, be quiet. If you take charge of that child's life, then you can get that foolishness out. Warning. Finally, the warnings about foolishness. Proverbs 13, 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Fellas, don't keep company with other fools. You get two fools together, you really got a problem. If you know, if you know yourself to be a fool, then decide right now not to keep company with fools any longer. Now, I've watched in our own children when they began to associate with a fool they would take on foolishness within a few days. And, I mean, they just, they just become fools themselves, just start laughing like the fool, standing like the fool, gawking like the fool, and just become a fool themselves in three or four days, especially if the fool's older than them. I mean, just watch it. And uh, a lot of times we've had to jerk them out of the company of, of another fool to try to keep their foolishness from going all out of proportion. And parents, you're going to have to be on guard. You need to look around this church. You need to say, who's a fool here? Which one of these young people are fools? And then go to your kids and say, you can't associate with that kid any longer. You say, that's going to make some lonesome kids. Well, maybe they'll grow out of their foolishness if they're not associating with fools. See, fools ought to associate with wise people. And the wise people ought to be older than them who won't be affected by their foolishness. Now, this is a, it's a real problem. Otherwise, what you have, you have a group of young people being measured by the lowest common denominator, being led by the lowest common denominator, especially if the fool is a little older fool and is a charismatic fool. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. Is, uh, is, you know, good, outgoing, dominant, strong-willed individual, then that foolishness is going to trickle down to all the other young people. And I'm not wanting just to throw out the fool. I want to help the little fool. But you don't do it by turning all the other kids over to the fools to be made like them. You do it by taking charge. 
Now, the thing about it, if you have a, a little bit of a fool at home, he's not going to appreciate you doing that. He's going to make a mock at what you're calling sin. He's going to scoff and not want your knowledge. And that's where you just have to be in authority. You have to say, either you obey me or you get out of the house. You see, my kid's only 14. I don't care if he's 10. If a kid will not obey you, it's time for him to go into the Department of Human Services right now. If he will not obey you, if he's rebellious against you, it's time to put him out of the house and be done with him for the sake of the other kids. If he won't break, get rid of him. You say, that's kind of what? No, listen. The Bible, the Bible method was you take them to the gate and stone them to death. We can't do that in our day and age. So turn them over to the Department of Human Services. That's very close to stoning them to death. Very close to stone death. I've counseled many of parents. They said, my kid will not submit. Then he's no longer your kid. You explain to him that if he lives in your house, he obeys or else he leaves home. Don't care where he goes, what happens to him, but you're going to leave home. As long as you're in this house, you obey. Parents, if you'll take that kind of authority, you'll get some submission. You'll get some submission. They will submit. So what if they leave? Then good riddance. I mean, why, why go on creating evil in that child's heart? Because that's what you're going to do. You're going to get bitter towards that child. That child's going to be bitter towards you. There's going to be anger and resentment in that home. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. It's going to filter down to the other kids, and you're going to destroy your whole family with that one kid. All right, so uh, the warning. Uh, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And then Job 5, 2, and 4, for wrath Kills, killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. And that's a lot of stuff. First of all, he associates silliness with foolishness. And he said he's seen that foolishness take root seen it become a way of life. And he said, I cursed his habitation. I cursed his way of life. I cursed where he lived. He said, the children of fools are far from safety. In other words, they're always in danger. They're crushed in the gate. They're going to be walked on. The, the child of a fool is going to be run over by an ox cart, is what he's saying. Listen to me now. He says the child of a fool, the gate is a narrow place in the city. The gate was the busy place in the city. The gate was where all the coming and going occurred. It was a dangerous spot. And he said the children of fools will get run over, be stepped on by an ox. In the, why? Because the ch fools, when they're told, buckle your child up in a safety belt, will not do it. When a fool is told, don't allow your child to stand up in the seat beside you, ignores it. A fool, when you're, when you're told, don't allow your child to ride a bicycle down that road. Your child is too small to ride down Highway 438. The fool ignores it. Don't allow those little children to be down around the creek by themselves. The fool ignores it. Don't park these cars out here. Don't drive fast down this road where the kids playing around the volleyball court. The fool ignores it. Be careful about your kids when the meeting's over with and people are driving. Be careful the way you drive. Be careful the way you back up. Be careful what you do. Don't let your kids play on the stairs. Don't let them play with butcher knives like that 
Be careful with those sharp sticks. Watch out for those wires. Be careful. And fools get busy reading books. Fools get busy baking cookies. Fools get busy taking naps. Fools get tired of their kids and send them off. And fools have their children crushed in the gate. Yeah. All right. Now, deceitfulness. The second, when this one be more brief, deceitfulness. What is deceitfulness? It's not walking in truth. I'm not going to go into that one. I'm going to save that so we can put more energy into it. And we'll stop there this morning. All right. Uh, I know these are hard lessons on you. Hard, you know, skinning you out and uncovering and, uh, tying you to post and beating you. I know it's rough. Uh, and I hate to have to do that, but you need it. Uh, man, when, when people come to us, when they come to us with kids, uh, grown kids or nearly grown, and, you know, the kids are, their lives are ruined. Parents are angry, hurt. And they start telling us all that's happened and how they got there. I want to come back and warn you of what's going to happen. And when I've seen things occur, seen people grow up and seen what's happened to them, I want to warn you. You know, life can be so full of good things. And for me, it is. I mean, this like happened to me. I mean, life is wonderful. I just enjoy it. I enjoy my wife, my kids. I enjoy them gardening and my home and working and writing and ministering and playing volleyball and going fishing every once in a while and swimming in the creek and smelling the honeysuckle. I mean, I just enjoy it all. But there's so many people that don't enjoy life. All Their life is so full of bitterness, so much anger and hate, resentment, so broken. And it's these little things. It's what the Bible says, it's a little fly falls the apothecary's ointment. And just the little things have to be rooted out, all right? All right, we've been talking about um, greatest uh, sins of youth. And uh, some of you have felt like we were talking about the greatest sins of parents. But the greatest sins of youth start with the greatest sins of the parents. Children are reflection of what they see at home, not what they're taught at home. Now, children are like Adam and Eve. They have all the potential and all the capability of conceiving of some sort of inordinate self-indulgence without your help. In other words, if you left them alone, they have the way of creating ways of satisfying the flesh. They're going to end up being very selfish, very indulgent, and uh, will be an addiction to some form of perversion before it's over with. Children have passions and drives, and they have inclinations that will lead to sin. Uh, But the thing is, when you receive that child into your home, that child is innocent. It's a book not yet written, a book of blank pages. 
When you receive that child into your home, it's a, it's a, a cassette tape that has nothing recorded on it. And that child is sort of turned on into your family and begins to pick up vibes and waves and begins to record life's events. And then that child feeds back to the world those things that have been fed in. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. As a man or a child thinketh in his heart, so is he. So the children are what we make them to be. And uh, it's strange how parents become angry at their children, three and four and five and six and seven-year-old children. It reminds me of a man being angry at a craftsman ratchet. You know, that ratchet is the same no matter whose hands it's in. But it's how you handle it that makes it a blankety-blankety ratchet. Or it's how you handle it that makes it a very effective tool. And so we come now to one, one sin of youth we'll deal with today. Just one, the one we didn't go on with last week, which is deceitfulness. Deceitfulness. Now, this is very prominent in children, prominent in adults. But you see, children have a way of being more transparent. Adults are more opaque. Adults, you have to know them very closely sometimes to know that some of these things are present because we develop sophisticated ways of presenting ourselves to those around us so that we can indulge without being known as an indulger, so that we can lie without being known as a liar, so that we can be selfish with, while appearing benevolent and spiritual while being carnal. But children are not that sophisticated. In fact, they're so honest that they're honestly sinners. They're honestly uh, wicked, honestly mean, honestly selfish, honestly dishonest sometimes. Now, very quickly, they learn how to cover and how to deceive. And so deceitfulness becomes a part of a child's experience very early on. Third John 4 has a verse that we use at the head of our newsletter. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, you have to have older children to appreciate this verse, I think. I, it wouldn't have meant anything to me uh, 15 years ago. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He didn't say walk in success. He didn't say walk in a good education. See? He didn't say walk in a good vocation. He didn't say walk in beauty or favor. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, walking in truth is more than just speaking the truth. It's walking the truth. In other words, it's the entire complex of life. It's what's intimated as well as what's said. It's what's implied, see, as well as what's stated. There are all kinds of ways to be deceitful and to not walk in truth. What are we talking about here? The nature of this deception. A child living in deceitfulness is a child that, first of all, knows what is expected 
knows what is expected of him from parents, from society, from God, from the rule of law in general. The child knows what's expected, but he chooses or has failed to come up to that expectation, so he chooses to present a false impression to those around him and to the world. He's deceiving. We might call that a hypocrite. Now, the thing about it is this life of false deception becomes a substitute for striving harder. Once a child learns how to deceive people around him, then he gives up the rule of law. Rather than striving to make himself better, striving to conform to his own conscience, he starts striving to create a false impression. So the child becomes an actor. And all of life's events are stages. Now, as I say this, I look out across here, and I know there's children here like that. I know you. I know there are teenagers here like that. I know there are young men in their early 20s who are here, and this fits them. You do not live according to the rule of law, and you do not live to please God. You live to make an impression on other people. You started off that way when you were two and three, the way your parents brought you up. And some of you, I know your parents. And I can see that you are exactly what they taught you to be. Now, the thing about a child is, as Paul said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child. No, much, no excuse there. I mean, I mean, there is an excuse there. I was a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. You see, you're not a child now. And as a young person, 10, 11, 12 years old or older, you now have full responsibility for your own conduct in life. If you are a deceiver now, it's not the fault of your parents. It's now your fault that you're a deceiver. You don't have to continue to be a deceiver. Now, the deceiver has given up righteousness and is content to appear righteous. The deceiver has no view of eternity. The deceiver does not think in terms of a hundred years from now, or a thousand, or ten thousand, or a million. The deceiver only thinks in terms of what's in front of him at this moment. That is, if I can pull the wool over their eyes, I've succeeded. Listen, all you've done is dig your hole a little deeper. That bit of dirt that you shoveled in their face just dug your grave a little deeper. That bit of manure you flung at them just provided you a pit to wallow in. So a deceiver has no view of eternity and a deceiver has no fear of God. A deceiver is foolish because a deceiver thinks that if he gets by this individual in front of him, mama or daddy or society or church or preacher or community, if he gets by this individual, he's made it. He's slidden by. Listen, you have slidden right in to the judgment of God. You've slidden right into God's record book. You've prepared yourself for the day of judgment. All you've done is built up the wrath of God against you by deceiving. 
The deceiver quite often become false accusers. That is, quite often we're in conflict or striving with someone else. Or quite often when there's an accusation made, the deceiver finds that by deceiving, he can make someone else appear to be at fault. And the deceiver finds that he can pass the buck and lay the blame. You realize that Eve was a deceiver? She was first deceived, and then she became a deceiver. Now, her husband was not deceived by it, but it didn't change the fact that she became a deceiver. He entered into sin for reasons of his own. But she brought a lie to him, the same lie the devil had told her. And then when she was accused of it, she passed the buck off and said, The devil made me do it. And it is a trait of a deceiver to start implicating other people. Because in many situations, someone is at fault. And those who, the parents who come and say, who did this? Who's responsible for this? Did you say that? Who started this? Why, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. He's the one that did it. So what has the deceiver become? The deceiver has become a false accuser. He's broken one of the Ten Commandments which says you're not to bear false witness against your neighbor. I see little eight-year-old girls who continually bear false witness against their neighbors. I see little 12-year-old girls who bear false witness against their brothers, against their mothers, or against their daddies when confronted by the other parent. And then I see adults who bear false witness against others in order to cover up their own guilt. What are they? They are deceivers. Sometimes it's done by saying nothing. Sometimes it's done with a, a twist of the shoulders or a nod of the head or a raise of the eyebrow. Or sometimes it's done with a tear. But it's done all the same. The intention is to pass the buck and deceive and make oneself appear to be righteous while the other appears to be at fault. No, it's bad to be a deceiver and not to admit your fault but then to use that as a jumping-off point to make the other person look guilty, that becomes a very, very, very great crime. That becomes a violation of the commandment and a deed worthy of eternal damnation and the fires of hell. Parents, your children, all of our children, are going to have the opportunity to learn to be a deceiver. And all of them are likely at one time or another to deceive. And how we respond to that deception is going to determine whether or not it becomes a habit ingrained and becomes part of their character or whether or not it's something that passes away with training and discipline. Now, why does a child deceive? What makes a child deceive? To look better than they are, to cover for their sin. For instance, you, you see children begin to learn to deceive about what they eat. Parents say, don't get in the cookie jar. And kids sneak and get in the cookie jar. Don't eat the cake now. Don't, you can't have any ice cream. And parents have 
restrictions at home about what children eat or when they eat it or where they eat it or the amount they eat or so forth. Why? Because in every one of us, there is the desire for sweets. You can take a piece of chocolate to a foreign country where they've never had chocolate, and they're going to like chocolate. They're going to die and kill for chocolate, you know. I mean, they're going to work long hours for chocolate. You can take a sweet Coca-Cola into a tribe where they've not had one. The first one, they might burn their nose. They might not like it, but you let them drink about three of them, and they'll work all day long for Coca-Cola. And when, when something just really appeals to the palate, people become liars. They become fraudulent. They become thieves to get that thing and put it in their mouth. And I see little children deceiving their parents. And then I see big fat women. And you say to them, uh, in, in a process of discussion, she says to me, says, well, I, I'm, I'm dealing with my weight. And I said to them, what you need to do is just stop eating all sweets and all fats and go ahead and eat black-eyed peas and, and potatoes and without butter and sour cream on them and tomatoes and cucumbers and, and turnip greens and just, man, just fill yourself up just till you can't hold anymore and eat all you want. You won't get fat. You just, you can't get fat eating that way. And they say to me, oh, I don't eat sweets. <laughs> I, I don't eat fats. And you're sitting there looking at a 230-pound woman that's only five foot six, you know, or five foot four. Now, she's a deceiver. I know she's a deceiver. I know she's a liar. And she says, well, it runs in my family. <laughs> yeah, uh, the habits of diet run in your family, and lying runs in your family. See? Say, well, I have a gland problem. Yeah, and you're feeding that gland, too, <laughs> and a bunch more. You say, well, you're kind of hard on women. Well, same goes for men. Fat men, too. It's the only thing men usually work more than some of the women, and so there's usually not as many fat men around as there is fat women. But same thing goes for men. Men usually are not close to the refrigerator, and, and I, I imagine if they were, it'd be the same, same situation, you know. If a man could hang around the house and get bored and just have it right there in the refrigerator and have to keep looking at it, keep looking at it, I imagine he'd have the same problem. But uh, they become deceivers. And they become deceivers about work. Yes, I did it. Yes, I cleaned it up. Why? Because no one likes to work, except Raymond. I mean, everyone hates work. Work is pain. It, it, you'd rather be doing something else. You'd rather be playing hard than working hard. And uh, kids will deceive you about their work. And they'll deceive you about being obedient. And then a child may practice deception in order to gain ascendancy over others. That is, the child, a lot of times you'll have a two or three-year-old and the child will deceive the parents for no other reason than to make the other kid look stupid or look klutzy or look disobedient or look irreverent or look anything that's undesirable. That child becomes a deceiver because he craves attention. He craves approval. He craves to be mama's favorite. He craves to be the special one. So he becomes a tattletale. He becomes a... a a reporter of the evil deeds of others. And when others are not doing anything evil, he'll make it up. Why? Because he wants to gain ascendancy over other people. That was the original motivation of Lucifer when he sinned. 
He said, I will ascend up. I will be like the Most High. When you have a three-year-old lying about the five-year-old in order to try to get close to mama, and mothers, if you permit that, if you allow that to go on, you're turning your child into a little devilish deceiver. So children will deceive in order to gain ascendancy. And then the essence of life comes to win approval by pretending to measure up. Children will deceive because they don't want to be found falling short. They, they will deceive because they know that they're about to be found guilty for something and they're going to lose favor. And they're, maybe they're, they're afraid they're going to lose fellowship. And so they will deceive the parent because they, they don't want the parent scowl. They don't want that raised or lowered eyebrow, you know. They don't want the hardened brow. They don't want the spanking. And so they deceive because they want to continue to appear obedient and in favor. And then children deceive to get their own way. His or her way. They, they deceive in order to, to get their way in terms of going somewhere they want to go or stopping their schooling so they can go do something else or play with something that they wanted to play with. Uh, any number of things. When a child has a, a way, he's decided, I want to do this. And he knows that there's something that the parent is going to see in this that's going to throw a a wrench into it, and the parent's going to say no. Then that child begins to calculate how he can deceive the parent into thinking the situation's different from what it is. Now, I know there are teenagers throughout this church that are deceivers. I know you deceive your parents. I know that you, my, my own kids have deceived me, and so I know yours do too. And I know that, that kids will try to make a situation appear differently from what it is. Why? Because they want to get their way. And so they become basically liars in order to get their way. Now, children will deceive in order to avoid the implications of public guilt. In other words, no one likes to feel guilty. No one likes to be condemned. No one likes to be at fault. No one likes to have to say, okay, I did wrong. I was wrong. I didn't do that right. I had bad motives. I, was, I cheated. I stole that thing. I, I lied. I really didn't do it. No one wants to do that. So children very quickly learn that they can say, well, I didn't mean to do it. <laughs> I, I didn't hear you. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that's what you meant. You did. You told me that. Well, I don't remember it. Now, all that, that's just lying. See, that's deception. And children very quickly learn how to use all those little things. Parents, you've got to be smart. You've got to have, those got to be little buzzwords. When you hear them, you've got to slap them down like flies. When they say, I didn't hear you, so I'm going to give you a spanking for not listening good. You know? Well, I didn't know that's what you meant. I'm going to give you a spanking for being stupid. You know? You're going to get smarter than that. We're not having about that stupid in the family. I mean, you know, you, you can't be buffaloed around. You, if you allow that child to take charge of events by saying, I didn't know, yeah. looking stupid. I don't know. Is that what you meant? Oh, I thought you meant yesterday. Yeah. Oh, I thought, you meant, I thought you meant for him. I thought you meant tomorrow. I thought, I thought this. Parents, learn to be very specific in what you tell them. 
and then expect them to do it and give them one try and don't make any parley. You're the boss, you're the Lord. You take charge. You say, well, that'd be mighty cruel. No, it won't because once your parent, kids learn who you are and how you're going to respond, they start remembering things and they start doing them and it stops being tyrannical. See? And there becomes fellowship in the home. All right? So they'll, they'll do it to, to uh, uh, avoid the implications of public guilt. And then they'll do it to get their way. And they'll do it to cover up their lack of temperance, their lack of self-control. We've talked about this a little bit already, so we'll kind of skip over that. But children who are intemperate in any area will lie to deceive. And when they grow up, they become adults who deceive concerning their intemperance. And then they, they do it to impress others with their talents or abilities. Children will deceive just to impress others with their great worth. I mean, politicians do it. You can tell how they were all raised. And, and uh, I mean, movie stars, uh, a lot of us, children, children want to be the center of attention. They want to be important. They want to be recognized for their great abilities. They want praise. Anyone here not like that? You know, I mean, you're that way too, aren't you? And, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, even God is that way. He wants praise. He wants recognition. He wants to be honored for who he genuinely is. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when you start deceiving other people about what your worth really is. See? In order to gain that, then you've cast off, then you've cast off right, righteousness and truth, and purity and holiness, and your end in life becomes to look good to other people. Now that's sick, that's mighty thin, especially since there's coming a day of revelation, a day of unfolding, when we will know even as we're also known. When everyone here will know what's inside of me, what my motives are, why I do the what I do, why I say what I say, will be able to have analyzed everything I've said and judged it. Now, coming such a day, folks, that's a, that's a terrible day. That's an awful day. Now, if you know such a day is coming, that ought to make you sober and truthful. Now, to allow your children to grow up without fear of God, with no view of eternity, as we talked about, thinking that the here and now is all that matters, that child does not believe in God. That child does not believe in God. That child has no focus that God is present, God is watching, God is seeing and hearing and recording all this. That child thinks that when you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. That child thinks that when he dies and passes on, it'll all be forgotten and no one will know. And parent, if you're a deceiver... If you're, lying, if you're doing that to, invo to avoid guilt, if you're deceiving in order to impress other people with your talents and your abilities and make them think you're more than you are. And, you know, I've, I've sat and listened to some of the people here tell lies and deceive in order to impress other people. And then children deceive in order to cover thievery. In other words, they're thieves. They steal something, and then, oh, he gave that to me. I remember when I was about probably three or four years old, because I remember where I live, I, I, one of my first memories. I went to my cousin's house, 
And he had these little metal cars about this long. And one of them was a, in fact, I drive past a car like that every Saturday going to the prison. And every time I see it, I remember it's an old thing sitting out in the weeds. It's about that long. It's about a 1949 um, uh, car. I don't know what kind. It's a slope back thing like that. One of the earliest ones that were kind of uh, streamlined look. And uh, he had several of them, and he had one like that. And I thought, man, that if I had that, I'd be happy, you know. If I, if I had that little metal car, I'd be the happiest person in the world. And so uh, I just stuck it in my pocket. I thought, well, he's got six or eight. He won't miss one. He hasn't got any right to have a bunch with me not having one, so I just stuck it in my pocket. So when I got home, where'd you get that? Oh, and I called his name. I don't remember what his name was. And he gave it to me. He gave it to me. And that's, that's, see, I'm deceiving. I'm lying. Now, my parents were smarter than I was. They knew my cousin was the stingiest guy in the world. Now, you know, I didn't know that. And I didn't know that he was the stingiest person in all the world. And the last thing he'd ever do is give one of his little new cars away. Well, now they knew that. I, I, I still, when I pass that thing, I, I can still, I still tuck my butt like that, you know. When I pass that car and see it after 50, after 45 years. Now, they, they broke that pretty, they didn't break it completely, but they broke it for a while, you know, that thing out of me. But listen, parents, you've got to be smart. You've got to pay attention. Now, what, I'll get to that in a minute. One of the problems is, I've got to say it now, one of the problems is there are mothers who are unwilling to believe that their little darlings are wicked, devilish sinners. And the mother is more afraid of facing it than the child is. Now, that's the biggest problem we got. Their daddies usually don't care one way or the other. They're busy. Mama, you take care of it. It just happens to be mamas have the burden of this thing, especially when they're little like that. And uh, one of the biggest problems is mamas want to be deceived because they want to pretend, too, that they got the sweetest darling in all the world. All right? Deceive in order to be loyal. Children deceive in order to be loyal. And this is a big problem. It's a big problem with adults. You see, loyalty is not a virtue unless the thing that you're being loyal about is virtuous. The loyalty is no more virtuous than the issue at hand. Loyalty itself can be sin if the issue is not virtuous. What do I mean by that? I mean like if a friend says to you, now I don't want you to tell my mama or anything, but I've got a boyfriend and I go see him. Yeah. Yeah, I don't right. say, okay, I won't tell, you know, because, yeah. you know, I, you're my good friend and I'm going to be loyal to you. <laughs> or I don't want you to tell this, but, and they tell you something. And what they tell you is wicked. What they tell you is wrong, what they're doing, what they're engaged in. And you say, okay, I'll stand with you. I'll stand by you on that. Mm-hmm. And you stand behind them and you're loyal to them. That's sin. A lot of times children will be loyal to their little buddies or their little friends and they'll become deceivers at home because they know if mama found out that my friend was doing this thing, mama wouldn't let me be friends with that person anymore. And so they develop a loyalty towards several individuals around them and they get close ties to those individuals and they deceive their parents and the other set of parents and anyone else that might throw a kink in this relationship. Now, there are young people in this church who are loyal to each other. It's very obvious to everyone. And that loyalty includes covering up sinful acts. 
includes covering up laziness and lying. For instance, when kids slip away and drive to Nashville or Columbia, when parents said, don't drive to Nashville or Columbia, and you don't tell. Or in a former situation that occurred here when a boy and a girl had gotten together and the, the, there was, it was not a righteous situation. And someone said, were they together? Were they dating? Oh, no, no, no. They just bumped into each other. And it turned out to be a deception, a lie. Things like that happen over and over. You see them, deceptions and lies and intrigue moving around. Why? To cover somebody's guilt. To cover somebody's shame. To be loyal to your friend so your friend won't experience what he deserves or she deserves to experience, which is exposure to the truth. Children learn to be loyal to cover someone else's sin. Now, when a child does that, what's that child's primary motivation? The child's primary motivation is to avoid God, righteousness, truth, and law. The primary motivation is to cover for what the devil's doing. That's sick. That's spiritually, morally sick. Parents, we've got to keep our children from developing along these lines. Young people, if your parents have developed you along that way, repent. Say before God, I'll walk in truth. I'll never be a deceiver again. Amen. They say to me, don't tell this. You say, well, then don't tell me. Because if you tell me and it's not right or you're not doing the right thing or this is not pure and honest, then I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to tell whoever's involved that can help you. And I'm going to report this thing. And I'm going to see that this is stopped. Amen. So don't tell me if it's not pure and wholesome and lovely and full of praise. Because I will not go along with it. If you don't do that, your heart's not pure before God. If you don't have that kind of courage, then you're a weakling that the devil is using. All right? Children are deceitful. In order to cover up for disobedience, we dealt with that sufficient. Were they going, are they going somewhere they shouldn't go or keeping company with someone they shouldn't keep company with? Uh, I've had people, young people actually tell my kids, now don't tell your parents. You know. now, I don't appreciate that. I highly resent that. I find that terribly offensive. I spent my whole life trying to train my children to be honest, walk in truth. I've even had adults in this church say, now don't tell your parents. Or say, uh, no, your parents won't let you do that. You, you can't do that. They don't let you have any fun. Uh, I highly resent undercover that creates deceit. That implies one ought to be deceitful. I ought to cover something else up, lest it be brought to light and be dealt with and their enterprise be stopped in its tracks. Listen, if it has to be kept from me, then it's not right for my kids. You say, but you're just an old fogey. It's still not right for my kids. If it has to be kept from my wife or I, eh, in order for them to engage in it, then it's sin. You say, well, I don't think it's sin. Then you're wrong. Because you have no right to, 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 to think about what I, how I raise my kids. You have no right to make a judgment on what I've determined is wrong for my children. And when you make that judgment for me, against me, 
and lead my kids to take a different route, then you're an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're my enemy. Amen. All right, the Bible says in Psalm 144, 11 through 15, Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity. Deliver me from strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity. And their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Deliver me from these strange children who speak vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be plants grown up, in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones, polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. In other words, these children of falsehood, strange children who would lead our children into vanity, they would prevent us from prosperity. They would prevent our sheep from multiplying. He says, happy is that people that in such a case, yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Saying, where there is not that falsehood, that right hand of lying and vanity. Now, how do children deceive? Children deceive with half-truths. Half-truths. With not speaking. With implying something that's other than what it is. And it's children deceive with emotion. Now, this is a big one. Children deceive with their emotions. Children learn how to manipulate their parents with their emotions, especially girls. Now, it's kind of sicky when boys do it, but you see boys use their emotions that way too, especially little boys. Now, I so despised it that, it, boy, it never got anywhere with me, especially in a boy. I mean, they tried it once or twice. They felt pretty stupid to ever try anything like that again with me. It didn't matter what it was. If a, kid, if a boy act like he had hurt feelings or act like his, his feelings were hurt or his emotions were disturbed or, or man, everything stopped. We're not going on after this. You're not getting anything you want. You're going to get everything you don't want. I mean, I am not moved. I have no, I have no pity for any of that. No crybabies, no whine babies, no little broken hearts. No hurt feelings, no trespass rights around here. I'm Lord of this place. I'm telling you what to do, and I'm telling you how to do it, and I'm telling you when to do it. Now get to it. If you want to whine while you do it, that's your business, but it won't change the facts. You say, boy, you're mighty tough and mean. My kids don't, they're not scared of me. They don't, uh, they're not uh, beat down, browbeaten, cowed, uh, uh, insecure, uh, whimped people, you know. So that what I have done testifies to the effectiveness of it, that it, it's effective. Uh, pity, uh, pity. Daddy, take care of me. Uh, protect me from the bad world and all those people I'm playing with. Uh, Daddy, they won't let me play. 
The little girl comes running, Mama, they pushed me down. Mama, they won't let me play ball. They won't let me hit the ball. They won't let me catch the ball. You kids not playing with Susie? Now, y'all let Susie play. You be sweet out there, and you'll let her play. Now, be fair. Let Susie play. Susie didn't have her feelings hurt. Susie didn't have a broken heart. Susie wasn't upset because she was mistreated. Turns out that Susie was trying to run the whole field out there. They'd already all elected to play one kind of ball, and she wanted to play another. And when they wouldn't play the kind of ball she wanted to play because she played that kind of ball better, she went and balled to her daddy and told her daddy that they wouldn't let her play. They won't let me play volleyball. So daddy goes out and says, okay, y'all let her play volleyball. Well, they weren't playing volleyball. They were playing basketball. Now they all got to play volleyball. Why? Because she had her feelings hurt. Daddies, you need to smarten up. Thank God that somebody around to hurt your kids' feelings to make them tough. You know, I kind of like that old country song where the guy named his kid Sue. <laughs> I mean, that's my style right there. Name him Sue, boy. Make him tough. Let him hit him a few times and don't watch when they do. When he comes crying, say, it's none of my affair. I mean, you start running interference for your kids, making sure they don't get their feelings hurt, making sure they get a fair dose, and you're going to turn your child into a deceiver. Now, if my child is the one abusing, if my child is the one not being fair and just, I take them aside and I teach them and instruct them. And I'm very, very tight on them being kind to other people. But if my child is the one not being kind to, there's no problem. I just don't care. In fact, I value the opportunity for them to get pushed around, stepped on, kicked around, uh, and abused. Because that's life. If you protect your child from, from all the circumstances of life and what other kids are going to do to them, if you run interference, you're going to turn your child into a little deceiver. Because he's going to start using that to control the other people in his life. Control his brothers and sisters. I see that this is so prevalent. Some of you mom are sitting there thinking, I don't believe that. Then you're dead wrong. Because I travel around and I stay in families and I get letters and I've watched this thing and I see mothers turning kids into deceivers, weaklings, controllers and manipulators by believing that those hurt feelings and that broken heart and that bump on the head that never happened was really a problem. We sat in a home one time, and uh, it was for breakfast time, and uh, several kids there, I don't remember, 14, 15, I don't remember how many, they're all under five. And uh, so this, uh, you know, when they get to moving a whole lot like that, you can't, you count them, and it, it gets higher than the, than the rate. And so there was this little girl, how, how was she, there? about three or four, something like that. And there was a little boy that was just a little older, wasn't he? about a year and a half, two years older than her. And he was one of these boys that's really active, really hyper, you know. And uh, so there was another kid sitting at the table, and these two were beyond us in the living room. Now, when she first came in there, she got in there early before he did. She sat at the table. She was cheerful. She was eating, and everything was going just fine. Then the boy comes in, and he's, now he's only maybe four years old, and he's sleepy, and he's staggering around, you know, and he just got out of bed. And Mama picks him up and begins to... Uh, hug him and well, like a mom ought to do and puts him down in a chair to feed him ask him what he wants to eat well all of a sudden the little girl started whimpering and crying and she had these needs all of a sudden and now mama was split between the poor little younger child and the older brother and it was real obvious to us the mother didn't see it 
she was, she was trying to take away uh, the attention mother was giving to the other brother. So she runs over and she attends to the needs of the little girl, you know. And, and the little girl did a dozen things like that during the course of breakfast. And then they get behind us and they're playing. And uh, she was, the little boy was stacking up some blocks or something. And she had her stuff. And she were over and knocked them down. And he got some... I could see him just standing there just shaking with anger like this. He wanted to hit her, but he didn't, you know. So he stacks his blocks, he stacks his blocks back up. And I thought, man, that's one fine kid there, you know. I'd have hit her myself. And he stacks his blocks back up, and she knocks him down again. Well, when, he, when she did, he jumped up and just pushed her a little bit like he's going to hit her, and he didn't. He just, just like this, you know, just, you can tell he's just raging. And she starts screaming. Oh, oh, oh. Mother looks around, there he is. Oh, he hit me. Oh, he hurt me. And she starts carrying on. And mother just tears him all up. He left that room mad. He left that room defiant. He left that room hateful. Why? Because he's got a lying, deceiving little sister and a stupid mother. Absolutely stupid mother. Who believed that he, that this, and she sat, she sat down the table, said, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. She said, he's just, he's got such a temper. He just gets so angry. I said, who does he get angry with? I mean, uh, everybody? No, it's just his little sister. Mm, is that right? And I, I believe it was this situation. I'm not sure now these things run together in my mind, but I, I, I believe it was. It could have been in the, what I just described or another, but she said to him, hit me. Uh, was, that, was that in that situation? Yeah. She said to him, uh, when the mother was out of the room, hit me. And uh, he didn't do it. Hit me. He didn't do it. So finally, he just kind of hits her like that. It wasn't anything bad. And she starts screaming again. Mama comes into the room and, and uh, gets all over his case again. I mean, you, she, her life was dedicated to getting him in trouble, and the mother thought he was the problem child in the home. Now, I told her who the problem child was. I said, Mother, the problem child is you. See? It's not the little girl. And it's not the little boy. The problem child is you. See? You are, you are, you want to be deceived. You love that little girl. You cherish that little girl. She's, she has such, and boy, the girl could just transform herself, you know, uh, into, into broken heart. Oh, yeah. And I remember one of the things that when the mother took the kid out of the room, the boy out of the room to spank him, she was, <laughs> I got him in trouble. Just turned it off like that. I mean, she knew exactly what she was doing. And she was controlling that mother. Now, some kids are not that obvious. But many of them are. Not to the parents, but they're obvious to others. All right. Uh, how children deceive. Through emotions, pity, through pain, pretending to have pain, hurt feelings, persecuted, mistreated, misunderstood. All of those emotions, they learn to apply and make it become the hit man make the parents run interference for them to control others around them all right another way children deceive is through sincerity i've seen children look just as sincere and truthful and stand there and lie to you and and as they get older it becomes religious sincerity i've seen young people stand up and testify cry then i'm testifying cry 
I just want to serve God. All I want to, all, they, all they want to do is, is lust. All they want to do is sin. But to stand up and, 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 and cry and testify to deceive everybody and make everybody think they're broken hearted and they're really close to God. And they're just liars. And you, you won't see me say amen to it. You just see me sit there and go. I mean, I can't say amen when I know somebody's trying to deceive everybody. I, I, I'm impressed, but not in the way you think, with that kind of testimony and pretense. And the adults will grow up to be deceivers. Religious pretense. All right, here's a scripture on this thing. I'm going to skip that one. Uh, Psalm 5, 6, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. God will abhor the deceitful man. Psalm 101, 7 and 8, He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. Well, if we start kicking all of our deceitful kids out, we'd have empty houses, wouldn't we? Grocery bill be less. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication. Listen to this list of sins. Fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness. Listen to this list of sins. The next one's deceit. Deceit. Lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man, defile the child too. And deceit is listed right in there with these other great and horrible sins. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with, now here is a list of all of the sins of the heathen. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, Debate and deceit. Malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Children, I'm talking to all the four and five and six-year-olds now. If you're deceiving your parents, the Bible says you're worthy of death. Your little three-year-olds, Little three-year-old girls and boys. If you're deceiving your parents, the Bible says you're worthy of death. Seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, if you're deceiving your parents, you are worthy of death. That's what the Bible says. God has prepared hell for the devil and his angels, and he prepared hell for little children that deceive their parents. You need to repent of your deception. You need to go to mom and daddy and say, I'm sorry I've been deceiving you. I won't do it anymore. You need to do everything your mom and daddy tells you to do. Do it the way they tell you to do it and be honest when you fail. Let them know. You hear me? All right. Romans 3.13. Their throat is an open sepulchre with their tongues. They've used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Now, finally, in conclusion... How parents contribute to deceitfulness in their children. Now we've dealt with that a little all the way through and so this will only take maybe five minutes and we'll be through. Maybe ten, possibly twelve, but probably five. 
All right, how parents contribute to deceitfulness in the children. First of all, by causing the child to be, uh, to be convinced of his inability to, su to succeed or to please. In other words, parent, if you are hard on your child, I'm not hard on my children. Thorough, consistent, but not hard on them. Now, if you're hard on your children, that, I mean, if you bear down so that, that you just erase their personality when they do wrong, so that you just, you come down on them in such a way that it just emotionally, genuinely, emotionally destroys them when they fail. See, then you, if you make it such a miserable, terrible experience, such a terrible loss of fellowship, so, so that you drag the thing out, I mean, beyond spanking them, you just, you just go on and on with it. You just drum on, you talk on, you, you, you make them feel like fools and idiots and stupid and and you make them feel like such failures and so unworthy, and you make them feel like they've got to strive to get your love back, and they've got to do something to please you, and, and you just wipe them out over their failure, you will force them into being deceivers. Can you see how that'll work? You'll force them into fear of facing the consequences. Now, if the consequences is nothing more than a cheerful spanking, children can stand that. It was nothing more than a children, a, a cheerful spanking or rebuke or maybe a double load of work or something like that to follow, to take care of their deception. Uh, and, and it's dealt with, it's over with in five minutes. Then kids can face that, get over that, and, and not be scared to death to fail. But if you, if you are hard in your spirit, if you're unforgiving in your spirit, if you're unrelenting in your spirit, and you're cruel, and you overshadow that child in such a way that you just scare him, then you'll force him into lying because I've seen kids scared to death, literally, not putting on, they were literally scared to death of their parents. They were horrified. They were just out of their mind with fear and with, with guilt and with a sense of, of total failure. And when you do that, the emotion in that child overrides fear of eternity overrides future fear of God. The child can't think about truth and about God and about eternity. All they can think about is escaping the here and now, avoiding any consequences right now because the consequences are so horrible. Do you follow that? And so we must, we must be, while being firm, we must be caring and gentle. You don't have to be hard in your spirit to be tough. You know, you don't have to be, a child knows when he's loved. A child knows when he's liked. He knows when you enjoy him, you appreciate him. And he knows when you're hurt because he did wrong and you care for him. He also knows when you're hurt because you're a self-righteous bigot and somehow your reputation has gone on the line or he has crossed you and like a wrestler is crossed who picks up a chair and starts banging somebody else with it because you don't mess with me. And if you've got that kind of attitude with your kids, you don't mess with me, you know. Then it's just a brawl. And the kid is going to become a deceiver just like if I was out on the street and a man put a gun to me and said, you know, give me all your money. And I give him all my money. And then he says to me, uh, where's your wife? And she's right over there in the car. And uh, I say to him, I don't have a wife. I'm not married. <clears throat> say, would you do that? Sure I would. 
say, why? Because I don't even cut my wife up or shoot her or mess with her. I'll deceive that, that fellow on the street. I'll lie to him, you know, to save my wife. I'll do anything at that moment to save my wife or my kids. If somebody comes in the house and I got them all hidden in the closet and they put a gun and say, we're rapists, we've come to get your wife and kids, where are they? Oh, they're on vacation. So would you, sure I will, you will too. Why? To save them. Well, you know, you can get your kids so scared, they'll just lie to you. They'll lie to anybody. If you come at them like a terrorist, you can make liars out of them, make deceivers out of them. All right? The pain of failure uh, being known right now becomes greater than his compulsion to actually be righteous. To avoid immediate accusation is his greatest compulsion. Then children uh, become deceivers by, by parents being naive, by making deception easy, and thereby inviting. If you can't see through that child's deception, then you make deception rewarding. When the child learns he can get his way through deceiving, then he makes it a habit. So you cannot afford to be naive. You, you, there's some mothers who are just emotionally disturbed. They, it's horrible to them to face up that their child has, is a liar. They just, they just can't face it, you know. Just can't deal with it themselves. And they would shut out the possibilities of facing that my little girl lies to me rather than just face it and deal with it. And they're making that child be a liar by refusing to face it. I've had to say to my kids, I've had to look them right in the face and say, you're a liar. Uh, one of our kids was such a liar, my wife promised to whip him every day at noon, give him, I think, five licks every day at noon for being a liar just on a regular basis for a week. And she did. She whipped him every day at noon for being a liar. And after seven days, he couldn't count he said, I'm going to quit lying. Said, I've made up my mind, I'm going to quit lying. He didn't know his time was up, see. I'm going to quit lying. It was Nathan. And, and, and he did. I think he quit. All right. And uh, then by assuming that your child is, is right and others are wrong, but taking sides with your child against other people will make your child a deceiver. But when your child comes to you whining about what happened, or what they did to me, you believe it. I always think my kids are, are deceiving me when they come to me. I never trust them. You say, why? Well, I was there when they were born. They all were flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And they came from my wife and I. And so I never did trust them fully. I always expected them to be giving me half the truth. You know? You say, well, I, my kids not like that. Yes, they are. You're lucky if they give you half the truth, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because they're going to grow up and be just like you. You realize that. And that's, you, you're trying to tell me that that's the way you are, that you give all the truth all the time and that you're... No. Now, it takes a while, doesn't it? All right. By asking questions that imply blame somewhere else makes children deceivers. The way you ask questions will turn a child into a deceiver. Honey, uh, Johnny said that you did this and that. You didn't do that, did you? No, Mama, you know I wouldn't do anything like that. I didn't think you would. Yeah. You just turned your child into a further liar. No, it's not. I'm, I, how many times I hear Mother, Honey, do you know who took the cookies? No, Mama, I don't know who took the cookies. I just can't figure out what happened to them. 
The way my wife would ask a question, she'd say, Gabriel, why'd you eat the cookies? <laughs> she didn't know who ate the cookies. She'd start Gabriel, you know. Gabriel, why'd you eat the cookies? Why'd you eat the cookies, Gabriel? You know. I mean, you've got to ask your questions right. Oh, I didn't eat the cookies. Who did eat the cookies? I don't know. <laughs> Nathan, why'd you eat the cookies? I didn't eat the cookies. Well, the girls are gone. There's only four of us here. Mike, did you eat the cookies? No, I didn't eat the cookies. <laughs> and I didn't eat the cookies. There's no mouse turds. So either Gabriel or Nathan ate the cookies. Which one of you ate the cookies? Neither one of us. Okay, I'm going to whip you both. That's the way we worked it. Thank you both. Line up. Which one of you ate the cookies? I did. All right, you're going to get both spankings now. You're going to get one for lying and one for eating the cookies, you know. Yeah. And you give them both to them. I mean, we saw, we rooted that stuff out. Now, I'm sure we missed some occasionally. But we were looking for it all the time. And we found enough of it. You've got to ask the right questions. Don't ever imply that your child is telling the truth when, when somebody reports. I mean, adults sometimes will come to parents and say, Say, your child tore that diaper up and scattered it all over it down underneath the church building, scattered all the parts down there. Mm-hmm. Oh, my children wouldn't do anything like that. Yeah. Honey, they said you tore that diaper up. They said you tore that diaper up and scattered it all over underneath the church. You didn't do that, did you? No, Mama, I didn't do that. Yeah. Well, kid was seen doing it. Mama, don't take the word of your child against an adult. Don't take the word of your child against one or two other kids. Now, if you know, you have to have a court sometime. Some kid may lie on your kid. And uh, that may happen. And you'll have, to, you'll have to seek it out. But in those early ages, be sensitive. Don't allow your child to get away with using deception to manipulate and control, or you'll make deceivers out of them. And then... Parents make the children deceitful by not treating one lie or one deception as very serious. In other words, letting them get away with it. By not, by being deceitful themselves. If mother ever, ever says to children, now, your daddy told us not to eat ice cream, but we're going to have just a little bit, and don't you tell him. If you ever do that, one time, you have established moral credentials that your children will live by the rest of their life. You're saying to your children, it's all right as long as they don't find out. Well, do you realize what you've done? You've said, if God says no, if you can do it and get away with it, it's all right. You've said, if authority doesn't catch you, it's all right. It doesn't matter what the rules are. doesn't matter what the authority is. If you can get away with it, do it. If it feels good, do it. You are teaching your children to be hippies. If you ever, behind your husband's back, or husband behind the wife's back, mother says, now I don't want those kids to have anything sweet because they're getting hyper. Daddy takes them out in the trunk and says, now we're going to stop and get a coat, but don't you tell your mother. Then you're teaching those boys, don't respect mother's word. Don't respect what mother says. Mamas don't count. Only daddies count. 
when you're making liars and deceivers out of your boys. So there, there is great danger in not honoring authority yourself and not being honest yourself. Never deceive. If your children see you deceiving, you'll teach them to be deceivers. And then finally, lastly, by, and we've covered this, by being so explosive that you cause uncontrollable fear in your children. We covered that thoroughly. That will cause deception. By being so explosive, so angry, that you cause uncontrollable fear in them. Now, children, speaking to those of you 10, 11, 12 years old and older, if you've heard this and you've thought, well, that's why I'm like I am. I understand now. My parents made me that way because I remember all the times I went to them whining and controlling my brothers and sisters and they let me get away with it. Yep, that explains it now. And that's why I have this problem that I've got. Their fault. Yes, it's their fault. It absolutely is. But you know, when you die and stand before God, your parents won't go to hell for you. You'll go to hell for yourself. Now, you can, you can go on living with what you are and who you are, kids, and say it's my daddy's fault. And you're right, it's his fault. My mama made me that way. That's right, your mama made you that way. No problem about that. The only thing is, if you continue in it, it's your fault. Because once you see that you've got a problem there, once you face it, as you've done this morning, say, okay, I'm a deceiver. Yeah. Once you face that, if you'll repent to God, God will give you the power to stop being a deceiver. Amen. And if you don't stop being a deceiver from this point on, it's your fault. You know, it's your fault from this point on. If you go out in the rain without a raincoat and you get wet, you're, you say, my parents sent me out here without a raincoat. That's right. And that's the reason you're wet. I have a raincoat here. You can put it on and get dry. You say, well, I don't want to put it on. It's my parents' fault. My parents made me this way. From this point on, it's your fault. Because I've offered you an alternative. Yeah. And that alternative is to repent towards God and say, God, deliver me from being deceitful and ask God for the strength to walk in righteousness. Now, if you're not saved, you're wasting your time. You've got to be saved. You've got to be born again. You've got to have the Spirit of God inside of you or you'll never be delivered. You're going to be a slave to this thing. So if you're saved, you have the strength to overcome. If you're not, you need to be born again. You need to be saved. Same thing with mamas that are deceitful and are weak or daddies that are deceitful and weak. You can overcome, and you should today. You have the power if you claim what God's given you. All right? Dealing with the subject of training children, we're talking about the greatest sins of youth. What are the greatest sins of youth? What kind of, what do we expect? What kind of obstacles are going to come up? What do we need to teach and train for in our children? It turns out that the sins of youth are the sins of parents also, and that's probably how they got to be the sins of youth. But nonetheless, as parents, we want to be able to train our children and deal with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your word. We thank you for what's before us. We pray you'll teach us, give us wisdom and understanding this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we come to the greatest sin of youth is bad company. And we're not talking about parents or grandparents. We're talking about 
other kids, mostly bad company. And uh, you say, well, my children are not old enough to be affected by that. They're only three. Yeah, well, we're talking about three-year-olds that are bad company, two-year-olds that are bad company, year-and-a-half-old kids that are bad company for your kids, and 10 and 11 and 12 and all the way up. There's always bad company around. In fact, most company is going to be bad company. I've had many a parent say to me on the seminars that we've done, they said, well, we took our kids out of the public school to get away from the bad influence. And we kept them from going to the mall so there wouldn't be any bad influence. And they stopped going to the movies. And we got rid of our television so they wouldn't have that bad influence. And uh, the only bad influence left, they say, in our family now is the church. And the church is a terrible source of evil in our family. And they say we take our kids to Sunday school on Sunday and spend the first three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, trying to straighten out the mess that occurred there at the church. Now, that's, I, heard, I hear that often, uh, very, very often. Had a pastor one time stand up after hearing the testimony of his congregation and of others who were there, a crowd of about 300 from all around the city, and uh, uh, after uh, five hours of seminar and a couple hours of question and answers, and hearing a number of people say that, the pastor stood up at the end and with a broken heart said, I feel like we ought to just shut the doors of our church. He said, we're doing more harm than we are good. And he was sincere. It's a big church, probably seat a thousand people. And uh, I encouraged him not to. I said, there are other ways to do that. Uh, children become like those around them. You see, yesterday there was a family visiting us, and they had a little girl about, how old was she, Deb? Two, two and maybe two and a half. Uh, I was taking a nap, and, and I didn't know there was anyone in the house. I knew they were coming, but I didn't know they were there yet. And I got up from my nap about 1230, and kind of our, our door opens very squeaky. It drags and shoved the bedroom door open and staggered in there and and here was this little girl about six feet from me, caught unawares. She'd look me up like that, and then she looked me back down. And her daddy's real curly-headed, so she's got this real tight, kinky hair. It looks like little Annie Orphan, you know. And she looks me up and down, and her mouth drops open, and she looks around at her mom, and I could see she was just about to break into a scream and run. She didn't know what that thing was that come out of the bedroom. And uh, so we watched her around there all afternoon, and, and she would just talk real fast, and Deb first listened to her and thought she was a foreigner speaking a foreign language because you couldn't understand a word she said, but she had good intonation. She had starting points, stopping points. She had expressions to go with it and everything, only she never said anything intelligible. She went on like that for about 45 minutes, and then uh, she followed Deb into the kitchen area, and Deb was talking to one of us about something, and I realized that her intonations were following exactly the previous phrase that Deb had made. And uh, I realized, I caught a couple of words then that she was trying to say. And I began to watch, and I noticed that what she was doing is she was repeating everything that was said around her. Now, she's not doing a very good job at it, but she was repeating it. And she's repeating it with the same tone. Children learn to talk. Have you noticed that an eight-year-old boy will talk just like his daddy? And even when he gets 18, he'll talk just like his daddy? I've met people, listen to him talk, never met them before, 
but I met the parents, and it's been five or six years since I've seen the parents, and I know who they are by the way they talk and the way they stand and what all. They learned that from their youth of being around mama and around daddy. Daughters learn to respond to life. Sons learn to respond to life by their parents. But I've also noticed that when kids spend a lot of time with a grandparent, that they will also take on the manner of the grandparent. Or if they spend a lot of time with a babysitter, they will take on the manner of the babysitter. If they spend a lot of time with the next door neighbor kids, like three or four hours a day, or even an hour a day, regularly, they will begin to say some things and respond. Have you ever noticed kids have these expressions like twisting their nose or screwing their mouth around or or something, you know, the way of responding to a command or when they talk to you. Well, you know, I don't, and they make these faces, and you'll, 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 look, you'll look at a kid, and all of a sudden you realize he's making the exact same face that the next-door neighbor kid makes. Well, the neighbor kid's copying his daddy, who's drunk all the time. So here you've got your little kid acting like a drunk, and, and he's only two years old. Where'd he learn it? He learned it from the next-door neighbor kid. Bad company. And then you tell him to do something, all of a sudden he responds in anger like the next-door neighbor kid. Now, he may not be particularly angry, but he's acting like he is because that's the, way you, that's the way you respond to commands. At least that's what he's been taught by the next-door neighbor kid. And so children are going to be sort of, uh, if you take the one hour a day here, two hours a day there, and six hours a day here, and three here, and once a week with this person, and and uh, total up, the, divide that in the number of hours in a week and, and then uh, come up with a figure and divide it by the number of hours in a day, uh, that's pretty well what they're going to be like. They're going to come out to be the sum total of all those people, the amount of influence that each one has brought to bear in the life of that individual. It's very important that you attend to the company your children keep. Now, one of the problems is parents are lazy. And it's easy just to put a kid in the company of a babysitter or a friend or the next-door neighbor and say, just don't bother me for a little while. The only thing, while that child is not bothering you, that child is being molded into the image of that other person. Is that other kid or that, uh, that babysitter, that individual, is that the kind of person you want your child to be? If it's not, then be assured that's the kind of person in some percentage-wise that you're making your child to be by that kind of exposure. It's inevitable. You say, well, I bear more influence. Quite often, parents don't bear as strong an influence as a peer does. Quite often, they respect and admire. There's especially the problem if the, your child plays with a child that's a year or two older than your child. Because children, like, they look up to that older, wiser child. Remember Eve, how she wanted to be as gods? How she wanted to grow in knowledge? How Satan assured her that something was being kept from her? Children want to grow. They want to experience. They want to do what adults do. They want to do what the older kids do. They want to be on the in crowd. Children are always learning. They're always discovering new things. They're always, everything is new every day. And they want to get in and get involved. Well, what kind of new thing are children teaching your children? What kind of revelations are they giving your children? 
Now, your children are soaking up all those revelations. They love new revelations. They love to learn new things, especially if those new things are known by adults. If it's new things that adults do and kids are not supposed to know anything about, then kids love to hear it. It's, it's, their, it's part of their nature to want to hear it, to want to learn. And you just be assured that all kids know something. And all kids like to tell what they know. And the older they are, the more they know. And whatever the background of that family is, whatever they're indulging in or involved in, whether it's TVs or movies or uncles that come to visit, or whether that kid two years older than your kid is associating with another kid two years older than him who's got an older brother who lets him in on all the activities. And so your kid is getting about the third or fourth generation of something that's very fresh and very ugly and very mean. I mean, I learned a lot of stuff that way. Didn't you? Do you think the world's changed since you were a kid? Do you think your kids are some kind, some kind of little innocent bunnies now and that all the rest of the kids in the world are now just totally reformed from what it was like when you were a kid? I tell you what, it's a lot worse than what it was when you were a kid. I, I'm amazed. My wife and I have often commented on it. We, we comment a lot on stuff, and we talk all the time. And very seldom do we talk anything frivolous unless we just feel like giggling. But uh, usually it's something intelligent we're talking about, you know. And especially when we ride along and drive along, we talk. And we've observed the fact that, that quite often parents who were into sin very deeply are the most naive for some reason. They're the most stupid. Somehow... They got into deep sin, and they feel like that that, that was uh, something that, that their kids would never be a part of. And they become the most naive. And then some parents who lived a very clean moral life, they, they're the most suspicious and strict. They're the, they're the ones who expect something evil to happen. I don't know, is it, is it that the parent who was into sin, is it their heart is hardened? Is that it? Is, it? is it that they're not as sensitive to the potential evil as other parents are? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now he's not talking about eating with one hand in your lap when he says good manners. Evil communications Children play, they communicate. When children 15 years old hang out together, they communicate. And evil communications corrupt good manners. Now that's a certainty. That's a law of fact. It's going to happen. Psalm 1-1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Do your children walk in the way of sinners? Do they sit in the seat of scornful? Second Peter 2, 7 and 8, And delivered to just lot, vexed with filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You see, Lot looked down there and had a choice between the well-watered plains of Sodom, the, where the 
industrial aspect of society was occurring were up in the hills where it was uh, farm life. And Lot had a choice, and he took down there where the life was easy because he didn't feel like he could deal with the ruggedness of life up in the mountains. So Lot goes down there, and he moves into the city. Now, he didn't like the people down there. He didn't like the way that they were sinners. But he found out that he could make a buck while he was down there. So Lot made a decision that even though they weren't his kind of people, and even though they were immoral where he was moral, even though they didn't have faith in God as he had faith in God, he realized that he could live a better life down there among them because there was money to be made. So Lot lived there among them, and sure enough, he did make a lot of money. Not only that, he got elected to office. He got to sit in the gate and got to be an important fellow around there. So here was Lot living there, and, and by the way, he had two daughters in Sodom and Gomorrah that were still virgins. In Sodom and Gomorrah, marrying aides that were still virgins. What an amazing feat he had accomplished. And uh, the, the daughters were betrothed to be married to a couple young men there. And so here was Lot experiencing the filthy conversation of those people around him, and the Bible said it vexed his soul. In other words, he was sensitive enough that this bothered him. It disturbed him. And doubtless, he took that disturbance in his spirit to be a sign of his own righteousness. In other words, he must have viewed himself and said, you know, I don't like this sin. This bothers me. This is terrible, what I have to experience here. But it is a good living. It is a way to make a dollar. And so I'll just, and I'm doing pretty good with my kids. So I'll just go on. And so he, he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their ungodly deeds. Then the angel walks in and says, God's going to destroy this place with fire and brimstone. Warn your family and get them out. So Lot goes to his daughters and tells them. And, and so they go and get their prospective husbands. And they come over and Lot says to them, said, look, fellas, I've had a visit from two angels. And God's going to send fire and brimstone and totally destroy this place. Now, these were the two son-in-laws, and they looked at Lot and said, <laughs> That's funny, Lot. You, hey, you sound like one of those prophets. He says, No, I'm serious. God's going to send fire and brimstone down on this place and destroy it. They said, Do it again. Hey, let me go up my buddies, Lot. Would you do that for all of us out here in the street? The Bible said they mocked him. He said he seemed to them as one that mocked. In other words, he, it sounded like he was pretending when he said that. It sounded like he was joking. They, Lot wasn't, didn't normally rebuke them for their sin. Lot didn't normally stand up for truth. He just lived there among them. And here were his sons-in-laws. They were already called sons-in-laws. They are already that close to, to marriage. And Lot had to leave there without them. They perished in the fire. Now, his daughters had been raised good, right? But they had had some influences around about, had they not? So they get up there in the cave, and one of them says to the other one, said, we don't have any men to go into us. Let's get father drunk. They did. They both became with child. And we had two little bastards, Moabites, that were born, that ended up being the enemies of Israel later on, that the Jews had to fight their way through and became a stumbling block of idolatry to them. Abraham brought him, Lot, into the land with him, disobedient. And it ended up being a stumbling block to God's program. 
You see, Lot maintained his righteousness in a wicked world, but he didn't protect his children. He didn't protect his children. They were influenced not to be as evil as the people around them, but just enough so that in the end, they were very immoral and wicked little girls. Bad influence. Bad company. Good teaching, just bad company. Good instruction, good faith, right God, just bad company. Genesis 19, 14, Lot went out and spake to his sons-in-laws, which married his daughter, and said, Get thee up out of this place, for the Lord destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-laws. Proverbs 1, 10 through 15. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, Come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave, whole as those that go down to the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us have one purse. Said, My son, walk not down the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. Young people, when other young people say, Come on, let's go have some fun. Come on, let's go do this or that. And if what they describe to you, where they propose to go, if you know them and know that what they're going to do is not going to edify, if, it's, if your parents are not going to approve of it, if I am not going to approve of it, it's sin. If you have to hide it from me or from your parents or from other young people in the church, if you have to sneak off to do it, and there's just a few people you can do that with that you keep company with, you're keeping company with a bad lot. Time to break it up. Then in Proverbs 13, 20, and 21. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Evil pursueth sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. He says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Now, how you who you walk with, is going to determine what you become. Proverbs 28, 7, Whosoever keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that is a companion of riotous men shameth his father. And then Psalm 10, 3, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. He said the wicked brags about the things he's going to do. And then he turns around and praises the covetous, those that God abhors. You be careful of company that praises and speaks highly of that which God despises. Now, some suggestions. Don't wait until a child or a family has a bad reputation to guard your children against them. Most evil influences never develop into bad reputations. Most evil influences never do anything that come to the sight of the community or the church. Now you say, well, my kids only play with people in the church. I sure hope you're more discerning than that. 
you could allow your children to freely roam with the kids in this church and you'd be consigning your child to hell. Now, all of our young people are not bad by any means, but there are enough bad influences sprinkled here than there. Sometimes it's not one kid with all the bad influences. It's one kid with one particular kind of bad influence. And if you allow your children free association without watching over them and guarding them and knowing what's happening and being there and listening and not letting them get out of your sight or out of your sound, especially when they're small, then you are turning your children over to be raised by kids sometimes with no convictions and no scruples. So you need to be careful. Don't bring your children down here and turn them loose on Sunday afternoon to just roam with anybody. To run down here to the creek and swim. Do you know what one kid can say to another walking from here to the creek? With you watching them? Just walking here to the creek? Especially if it happens to be a little boy about 9 or 10 years old or 8 or 11 or something. Or a little girl about 7 or 8 who's got a little older brother or an uncle or a daddy or or something else, or happens to watch uh, something on television, one of those cable channel programs. You know what? You know what your kids can get into. And if you don't, you are mighty naive. So don't wait until a child or a family has a bad reputation to guard your children. When when we built our houses, every house we built, we built them without a hallway, so that you could sit in the living room and see into all the bedrooms and hear what was going on in all the bedrooms. Now, it's not always been convenient. There are times I wished my bedroom were at the end of a hallway where I couldn't hear what was going on. But at nighttime, if a kid gets up, I can hear the door. I can hear the floor squeak. And when we have company and they come and they all go into a room, we never allow them to go in and shut bedroom doors. And we didn't allow our kids to put locks on the doors and lock their parents out. We walk up at any time and open the door. Now, when the girls got big enough to be self-conscious, I didn't walk in and open their doors. I knock and give them three seconds to jerk themselves up and cover themselves with something. But usually Deb was the one that would, would check on them. You say, don't you trust your kids? You think I'm stupid? As I said, I was there when they were born. They're all flesh. You say, well, aren't your kids better than everybody else? No, this is made out of the same flesh. Same stinking, rotten, slimy flesh. Same passion, same drive, same desires I was born with. No, I don't trust them. Why should I? I let them know that a long time ago. The kid ever says to you, you don't trust me. Hey, you're growing up. All right, now, secondly, if your child becomes too enthralled with another child, be aware, that's a sign. If your child gets enamored with another child, just wants to be with that kid all the time, and just really begins to be fascinated with that other kid, watch out. You say, why? Because when they get emotionally attached, when they get fascinated with another kid, they are learning to be like that kid. They cannot help it. You need to appreciate this. When your child just begins to be enamored with another child, unless that other child has some wonderful virtues that you want your child to have, and that's the virtues they're, they're emulating, then you be careful. Because when that child gets attached to another child, especially if it happens to be a little older child, it doesn't have to be. 
but that's real tendency. You watch out. Uh, sometimes you see teenagers get like that. You'll see two girls just get so fascinated with one another it gets kinky. You know? Stop that dead in its tracks. When you have a daughter that gets enthralled with another girl, don't, for, for God's sake, don't let them spend the night together. You know, if one of them has to spend the night at your house, make sure they're in separate rooms. Say, so you talk like you don't trust them. No, I don't trust them. I've been around too long. I've counseled too many people. Good people, good families. I know what can happen. Thirdly, if the personality of the other child is too strong, watch out. If there's a child that is strong personality and controlling and dominating, be very careful about how your children spend time with that child. Because that child has the power to persuade. If you see your child knuckle under, become subjected to another child's personality, withdraw your child from that fellowship. Are you following me? I'm giving you some good advice now. When you see your child just begin to be worshipful, then you withdraw your child. You make sure that they are playing very briefly once a week for a half hour in your sight and no other time. You say, well, I don't want to deprive my children. Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> you ought to. There's a whole lot out there you need to deprive them of. So you don't let them have any fun. Sure, have fun with them. Let them have fun together, your own kids together or something. Be very careful what are the kids you pick and how you let them have fun. Watch over them. All right. Fourthly, if the other children want to withdraw or run away from their own brothers and sisters or the brothers and sisters of the either pair, when you have six or eight kids get together, two families, and two of them have a tendency to want to run off together, stop it right there. Want to be up in the barn together. Want to go in the bedroom together. Want to go for a walk together. Now, if you've got two boys about the same age that want to go out and build a treehouse, that's fine. Just go out and check on them at the treehouse every once in a while. Talk to them. Uh, when your boys get, when they get old enough, you know, like three or four to get into something, explain some reality to them. Explain them where they can be touched and where they shouldn't, what they should say and what they shouldn't say. What they should do when somebody responds in a certain way to them concerning their body or the body of the other individual. Or when they want to talk about their sisters or this or that or that or a book or a picture or something else, explain to your boys what to do and how to respond to that because it's going to happen. That's right. I've explained to my kids from the time they're young, one day you're going to run across a pornographic magazine laying on the side of the road when you're riding your bicycle down the road because a lot of stupid perverts that like to throw them out so kids can find them. And so when you run across a pornographic magazine, don't dare pick it up and look inside of it. If you do, it'll twist your soul forever. One look. Don't do it. You need to warn them ahead of time. You need to prepare them. Fifthly, if the other child is not what you admire, don't let your children spend time with them. If they're not what you admire, don't let your children spend time with them. Sixthly, learn how to stand firm. Learn how to hurt feelings. Uh, a lot of parents have sold their children on an altar of peace. A lot of parents, out of a desire to maintain peace and not hurt feelings, 
have allowed their children to get into evil. Afraid to say, to answer uncles, no. Afraid to say to cousins, no. Afraid to say to grandparents, no. Afraid to say to members in the church, no. Learn how to take charge of your life and your child's life for your child's sake, regardless of how it affects other people. Now, you want to pat it as much as you can. You want to be as kindly as you can. You want to sow peace as far as you can sow peace. The Bible says as much as possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. And most cases you can do it and no one ever know that you've taken a stand. They may think you're busy or you have other interests or something else is taking place. That's fine. But there may come a time when someone will confront you and say, what's wrong? And you'll need to tell them. I do not approve of the way your child does this or that. And my child is weak just like yours. And I'm having enough trouble with mine as it is. And I don't want to add to the problem. And so we're going to keep our children uh, apart as much as possible. And so that'll upset them. What's more important? Maintaining your children are allowing yourself to be at peace with Sodom. So you may have to appeal, appear peculiar or old-fashioned, be called self-righteous or prudish. But you can develop a thick hide. And then the moment you see your children taking on undesirable traits, cut it off like the head of a rattlesnake. Now, this happened to my children. If we've raised our children, I've watched them. They start associating with a couple kids hanging out with them. First thing you know, they're standing the same way. They don't stand like daddy anymore. They stand like jerkhead. You know? They don't, they don't respond like mom or daddy anymore. They respond like old, uh, air brain. You know? And they start laughing some stupid way. Or responding some stupid way. And it, it's, it hurts to see your child molded in the image of some retard. You know? Some spiritual or emotional retard. And think about the kids. If you, if you tell them, hey, you're, you're laughing like so-and-so. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're. They, they have no idea that they are. Hey, you're beginning to act like this guy or that guy. Don't do that. Just be yourself. They don't know it. They can't see it. And, you know, it takes about a week of constant company or pretty regular company, and they can just switch over just like that. And uh, so I've seen my children take on uh, undesirable traits from other people, and we've had to channel them and steer them and try to work some of that out, you know. And it's not, it's not easy. It requires constant vigilance, and quite often your children don't understand Quite often, they don't know what you're doing. doesn't make sense to them. All right? And then uh, I mentioned this already, but we'll hit it again. Quite often, the church is a bad influence. You don't have to allow your children to be a part of all the church activities. 
I've had parents say to me, but the, the youth activities at my church are no good. Then don't allow your children to go to youth activities. You can go to that church and hear the preaching and participate and not send your kids on a hayride, you know. They don't have to go to all-night bowling. They don't have to go to the youth camp. See? I mean, you, you, you have the final say. You let your children know that just because it's church doesn't mean that they are going to be participating in it. So you don't, you may not find, I don't know that you could find a church with more than four families in it. I mean, you could get four families who selected each other mutually, you know, uh, through draw, through uh, excluding six or eight other families and kind of withdraw into a home church. You could get four families that were very much like-minded where you could feel real comfortable. But as soon as you, a fifth one just kind of hears about it and is added to your group, you're going to have problems. And when you get up to 50 or 60 or 75 or 100 people like we are, there's no way that you're going to have a perfectly pure environment. And folks, life is not like that. You can't move into a community where that way. You can't have a job. You, you're going to be associated. The thing is, your kids are just not ready to deal with all that yet. And you're going to have to learn to be very selective and very careful until your children are mature enough to make some decisions on their own and have some wisdom to see what's happening around them. So you're going to have to be selective. And after all, the church is not supposed to be an exclusive club of chosen out ones. It's supposed to be everybody's born again, and there's going to be some problems there. So teach your children to minister to these people or to withdraw if they cannot minister to them. All right? And then, uh, now here's a hard one, but I've had people come to me and say, uh, we get letters like this often. They say, my children do fine until we go to visit grandma. And then grandma messes them up. And I say to them, well, that ought not be any problem twice a year. Oh, but we go Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You're going to grandma's house too much then. Oh, my children stay over there all summer. Well, if grandma is raising kids just exactly the way you want them raised, maybe doing a little better job than you are, then by all means, send them to grandma's. But if grandma's kids, if half of them turned out rotten, half of them turned out lousy, and two of them turned out just like you, then maybe you don't want to send them to grandma's house, you know? Maybe, maybe you want something higher than that. So you go visit grandma and grandpa, but don't leave your kids there to be raised by them. You say, well, they need their grandparents. Make up your mind what you want. Make up your mind what's important to you in life and take charge of your life. People write me and say, but my, my grandparents are threatening to turn us over to the Department of Human Services. I said, why? Because we spank our kids. How do they know you, that you spanked your kids? Well, they see me, stupid. Don't go, to, don't go stay there long enough to have to spank your kids in front of grandparents who are going to call the Department of Human Services. You know? Get your kids straightened out before you go. At least promise them ice cream or something, you know. Anything to endure the two or three hours in perfect harmony and peace and then go home and take care of the problem. But don't go over in front of grandparents. And I've known that. I knew a fellow friend of mine had to flee the state just ahead of the Department of Human Services 
because the grandparents were trying to have the children taken away from him. So I don't care where the bad influence is. Flee from it unless it's your spouse. <laughs> Nothing you can do about that. You married him, you live with him, and your children become like him. I mean, that's what you married. That's, you, you resigned yourself to your child becoming like your husband, mother, when you married him. You cannot flee. That's it. And if you married a woman like that and you don't want your children to be like it, that's too late to make a, a change your decision. It's already made. You're going to have your daughters to grow up to be like the woman you married. There's nothing you can do about it now. You can't gripe on her case. You can't ride her back with that. You can't tear her down. You just got to be a loving husband and uh, allow her to raise your kids because you already made that decision when you married her. All right? And then uh, the final one here. The worst company for children, guess what the worst company is children can keep? The best, the worst influence on them. Television. That's right. <laughs> Television. Now, if two hours with a next-door neighbor could be bad, what about two hours with a long-legged, floppy-breasted, lip-painted slut? Huh? Would you let your kids go and play two hours with that? You say, well, they don't have... What about the commercials? What about the commercials? It sells the cereal and stuff. Sells it with sex. Would you let your kids play with a next-door neighbor who walks around with a 38 stuck in here, slapping people upside the head, cussing them, talking dirty and vulgar to them? So, but he's a cop. That's his job. Would you still want your kids to play with the cop next door? The detective who works for Miami Vice Squad. You want your kids to play with the cop next door for two hours every day? Raise your kids for you? What about Clint Eastwood? Make a good daddy figure, wouldn't he? Cigarette in his mouth, stick a dynamite in one hand. Come over and play for a couple of hours. You say, I don't know where I went wrong. Liar. Because you like Clint Eastwood. That's where you went wrong. You see, children are going to become like whatever they're exposed to. That's, they are growing. They're being molded. It's like fresh clay. You hold it in this hand, it's going to look like that hand. You change hands, it's going to look like that hand. You hand it to somebody else, it's going to look like their hand. Are you following me? If you let everybody come by touch it, it's going to look like everybody's touch. It's going to look like nothing. Just a mixture, conglomeration of everybody's touch. If you want to mold them to be like Jesus Christ, you've got to be that yourself. You've got to have the Word of God. You've got to have other people that are in the image of Jesus Christ, and they've got to be pressed into a community and a mold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm one nineteen sixty three says, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. It said, when the righteous see me, they'll be glad. Malachi 3.16, They that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Let your children associate with people that think upon the Lord's name. 
that speak often one to another of him. Young people, you need to pick your company that way. Do you, do you keep company with people who speak of the Lord, who speak of his works, his ministry, his might, his holiness? Or do you run with kids who speak of fun and pleasure and boys and girls and dating and who likes who and who likes what and what we're going to do next weekend? Air brain, piddlehead, empty-hearted little fools. You're going to be like whoever you hang with. So, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. So one of the greatest sins of youth is bad company. Now there are two persons, company, that you can't do anything about in terms of keeping your kids from them. Guess who they are? That's mom and dad. If mom and dad are bad company, well, that's what they're going to be like. So if mom and dad are bad company, the only way you can change that is give your kid away, which is, a, would suggest, I mean, I've seen people, my suggestion is give your child away. Give your child to someone who is not like you. Really. I wish I could go back right now to some people who have grown teenagers and say to them 19 years ago, give your child away before you destroy that child. Or there's one other option. You can repent. You can repent and walk in righteousness and true holiness and purity of heart and mind and become the parent your child needs. You can repent. And by the way, if you don't repent, you'll perish. And so will your child. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you'll use this to stir our hearts. God, protect us. Teach us to protect our children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the word of God that's before us. And pray you'll minister it to us. Teach us from it. Pray you'll make us better parents. Children obedient to their parents. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not as hot today as it's been being. feels pretty good. Uh, we've been talking about the sins of youth, the greatest sins of youth. So we come to the final two we'll cover today. And this will be the end of all the sins of the youth. All right, this next to last one is pride. Did you know that was one of the problems with young people? Three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds with pride. He said, well, I can't imagine a four- or five-year-old being proud. Oh, I see some very proud four- and five-year-olds. And the kind of pride we're, not, we're talking about is not someone who's just proud that they do a good job on a painting or proud that they did the dishes well or made a cake. That, that kind of thing we call pride, but that's not biblical pride, you know. Uh, a person should take what we call taking pride, should take pride in what they do and the way they do things and, and uh, in the things that they do that are helpful and a blessing to other people. Uh, there's not, no sin in that. But the kind of pride we're talking about is where one elevates himself over other people, where you put down other people. 
where you think yourself better or more deserving than other people, where you don't feel that you're responsible to the same rule of law that other people are responsible to, or where, where you think someone is inadequate, dumb, or stupid, and you strike out against them, or you speak bitterly or cruelly or condescendingly or or exclude them from your company or your presence, or especially when you go to other people and you mock or ridicule or make fun of someone when maybe they're not present uh, and try to tear them down in the face of these other people, or if they're present, of course, it'd be even worse. And so that's the kind of pride we're talking about. Now, are you beginning to see that three-year-olds have that kind of pride? That four-year-olds can have that kind of pride? Uh, when, when children refuse instruction from parents or from other people, that's a manifestation of that pride. For instance, when you say to a child, now put that down, that's dangerous, don't do that. And the child says to you, you can't tell me what to do, you're not my mama. That's pride. That child has the conviction that he is higher than that adult. That somehow he has an authority that the adult shouldn't exercise over him. That's pride in that small child. Now, children don't come by pride uh, at birth. It's taught to them. It's instructed into them. It becomes part of them by the way that they're raised. The Bible says in Proverbs 30, 11, and 12, There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. I don't know how many times I've seen a little cute four-year-old full of pride. A little girl flashing around her skirts or her curls. And when you say something to them, even if it's something encouraging and nice, they might go. You say to them, well, you're looking nice today. Pride. Our young fella, about five or six years old. How you doing there, young fella? All right. You know? And you see pride in them. Now, they didn't come with that all at once. Then it says, Proverbs 41, 34, He beholdeth all high things. He is king over all the children of pride. That's speaking of Satan. You see, children of pride have a king over them, and it's the devil. His sin was pride. And if he can bring a little child to a place of pride, then he captures that child's soul and will eventually damn that child. Then we read in Psalm 10, 2, The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. You often see children, they seem to be the most guilty in it, mocking and scoffing at someone that's not like them. You see children, if they find someone that's different from them, whether it's a different race or whether it's someone who's not as adequate as they are in some area, uh, someone who's a, a sissy or fat 
or skinny or who has a mark on his face or a scar or who talks kind of funny and doesn't talk, he scares the other kids when he talks, you know. Then other kids will very quickly just jump on that kid and mock him and make fun of him and, and embarrass him and humiliate him. Now, why are children doing that? They're doing that because they want to elevate themselves. They want the other kids there that they're mocking to to like them and not to like this kid. They're shutting him out so they can keep this little exclusive circle whereby the, the special people abide. That's pride. Now, adults, we're, we have a tendency to do things like that, too, only we're more sophisticated with it, you know. We know how to do it so that we don't look like fools. Now, kids don't know they're not supposed to look like fools. And so they'll just come right out and just do it right out in the open and just expose themselves. It's children of pride. Pride, he says, uh, the wicked in the pride, in his pride, doth persecute the poor. And then, what can, what do parents do to bring this about? Uh, when parents give excessive attention to the appearance of a child or to a child's ability, they can create pride in the child. In other words, when, when parents spend a lot of time making children pretty and then talking about how pretty they are, then certainly you're going to produce pride in the child. Now, it's difficult, I know, because there's nothing prettier than little girls that are a year and a half or two years old. They're just beautiful. They're wonderful. All of them are. And they're just as cute as they can be. And uh, we like to we like to comb their hair and uh, and put dresses on them and, uh, if they're girls. And if they're boys, we put uh, uh, overalls on them when they get two years old. You know, you look all over the county for a pair of overalls that fit a little two-year-old. And then you put cowboy boots on them when they're two years old. Can't hardly walk in them. It cripples their feet, but they put cowboy boots on a little two-year-old. And then they get him a hat, you know. And then just admire him. And then when company comes in, they all admire him. Now, you say, well, that's, that's innocent. Well, I know the intentions may be innocent. And I don't doubt that. But that sort of thing can very quickly build pride into the kid, especially when he starts noticing he's different from the other kids. Or in a little girl, when she begins... I've seen little girls that were told they were pretty and cute, and probably they were, but they get snooty. Have you noticed that? They get kind of snooty and, and kind of uh, prissy and sort of bossy, and they develop sort of a resentful uh, air about them, like, like they were condescending to adults when adults spoke to them or, or tried to involve themselves in their conversation or in their life. Now, that's a very bad start to start your children off with that kind of pride. Now, you need to teach your children to be proud of slopping the hogs right or feeding the sheep or proud of cleaning up the kitchen and doing a good job or proud of making a dress uh, that doesn't look like much, but they made it and they're, they're proud of the good job they did. Or a fellow proud of fixing his bicycle. Uh, fixing a flat or making it run or tuning it up or of uh, doing a good job in the garden or any number of things that, that make up real life, see, that's not elevating oneself over other people but simply being confident and secure in those things that make up real life. But when it comes to relating to other people, other young people, and we start 
singling our children out and making them special, making them better. Or when we, when parents speak about the other kids as that kid's stupid or that kid is, is ugly or that kid is, is a jerk, a nerd, you know, and do it in light of elevating our own children, then we give them the sense that they have a right to go around elevating themselves above other kids. So parents have a real responsibility here. Uh, one day we were in the grocery store, and there was a little girl, the, the one acting sexy, less than two years old, wasn't she? Two or two and a half or something. And her mother had dressed her in a sexy little outfit, and that girl's every move was like a cat. She purred when she moved. And you could see her look down at her body to see how it was moving. And she'd look around at others to see how they're watching. I mean, she was totally sexualized at two years of age. Doubtless she played with Barbie dolls and watched television at home. No doubt her mother probably sunbathed in a uh, bikini and stretched her long legs on the couch and, and pranced and pressed before her daughter. And the daughter had developed a full sense of her sexuality at two or three years old, whatever she was. And her pride in that, I could see, was going to destroy her in the future. All right. Our next sin of youth is disobedient to parents. Now, this is uh, one our, all of us parents would like to get straightened out. We'd like all of our kids to be obedient. Uh, I have three dogs at my house, and all three of them are disobedient. I have a cat, and it's disobedient. I don't believe I've ever had an animal that wasn't disobedient. But I've seen people that had animals that were very obedient. I saw a fellow one time, we were sitting at his table eating steak. And he had this little thing that he called a dog. And uh, it weighed about, you know, pounds. You know how some of those creatures can look. And uh, my cat was bigger than this thing. and But it, it still, it had the canine uh, features. And he, it barked instead of meowed. And he took a piece of meat and laid it on the floor. And I looked at the dog, and the dog laid down in front of the meat and kind of stuck his paws out, pointing at it, and put his chin on his paws and studied that piece of meat like that. And I thought, well, the, the dog's a vegetarian. And I'd never seen that. That was unique. And so he sat there a minute. I said, why won't the dog eat it? He said, I didn't tell him to. He said it real snooty, you know, like stupid question. And so I continued eating. I watched the dog. And he made some little clucking noise or sucking noise or hissing noise or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. But when he did, that dog just ran over and scooped that thing up, sucked it up like a vacuum cleaner, sucking the feather, and it was gone. And I said, that's amazing. I said, how would you do that? He said, again, you just got to be smarter than the dog. And so I cough a little piece of meat to see if I was that smart and laid it on the floor in front of the dog. And the dog again just sat there and looked at it. So I made this noise. I tried to make one like him. He wouldn't eat it. So I made another noise. He wouldn't eat it. So I tried several different things. And finally, I started shoving on the dog. He still wouldn't eat it. So he made the little noise. And the dog sucked it up again. So it confirmed it to me. Now, see, dogs don't come trained like that. You know that. Every dog I've ever had will mess up the floor. Every cat I've ever had will mess up the floor. I had a goat messed up my bed. 
I didn't let him in the house. He went in after on vacation, you know, and came home and I, that was a good pillow I used to have. I had to throw it away. But people train people train animals. They're a lot not not near smart as a kid. Stupid animal. I saw a cat one time that would go in the pot. He would. That cat didn't have a box. He'd go in the bathroom and jump up on the pot and straddle it and and do his thing. Now that's a I don't. I never thought anybody could train a cat to do anything, much less that. Now, folks, you got kids. If they're disobedient, it's because you didn't train them to be obedient. Now, they don't come obedient. I guarantee you that. They have to be trained. But children can be trained to be obedient. Now, Bible says in Proverbs fifteen five, a fool despises his father's instructions. But he that regardeth reproof is prudent. It's, it's about too late to train a child by the time they get 10 or 11. It needs to be sooner than that. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, children, speaking to children now, talking to all you three and four-year-olds now, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, children, obey your parents in all things, except when they're unreasonable. Is that what it says? No. It says, Children, obey your parents in all things. And then it goes on to say, For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. God is well-pleased when children obey their parents in all things. Then in Matthew 15, 4, it says, For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Children, the Bible said to honor your father and mother. It says, If you curse them, then you should die the death. Say, what kind of death was that? That was big rocks banged on your head. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody go home and stone their kids. But in the Old Testament, children who refused to obey, once they got up to be young teenagers, if they were incorrigible and would not obey, the Bible said if they became a drunken and a glutton, if they refused to obey their parents, then they were taken to the court, found guilty, and they were stoned to death. So it's very important that children learn to obey when they're small. Now, how can parents teach their children to be disobedient? You see, that's, that's how they learn. First of all, you teach your children to be disobedient by not expecting perfect obedience. That's the first fault. If you don't believe that your children can be perfectly obedient, they won't be, I guarantee you. If you don't expect them to be perfectly obedient, they won't be. If your expectations are lower than that, you can expect them to render obedience lower yet still. Now, you may never bring your children up to your full expectations. I never brought any of mine up to full expectations. But if you expect less, you're always going to get a little less than you expect. And so you can't expect too much. In other words... Perfect obedience is what we expect from our children all the time, without fail. Now, if you are in the habit of begging your children or pleading with them, then you don't expect perfect obedience. If you're in the habit of nagging them and whining at them, then you don't expect perfect obedience. When you expect perfect obedience, you are offended and surprised and shocked when you don't get it. And you don't begin to whine and beg and nag them. When you don't get perfect obedience, you stop what you're doing and you have this shocked, amazed look on your face. 
And you look at your kids and you say, what did you do? What did you say? Why did you not? And then you take steps to get immediate and perfect obedience. When your children learn that you expect perfect obedience, they'll start trying to give it. When they know that there's not going to be any second and third chance, when they know that you're not going to back off from this thing, when they know that you are going to stick with it until you get what you demanded, your children will obey. It's the only comfortable course in life. They're just selfish enough to do that, which is easy. And when you make it hard to disobey, I guarantee you they'll take the easy route and work themselves to death to obey. Now, I'm not suggesting that you be so violent and mean that you, you, you jump, tie into them, uh, spanking and beating and cause them to suffer a great deal. That's not the way. The idea is that you be consistent in your demands. Now, the next thing is consistency. Parents must be consistent. If you demand strict obedience today and you spank them if they're not, and then tomorrow you say, well, I'm going to be gracious, then you've lowered your standards, you've lowered your expectations, and they're going to lower theirs. They're only going to come up to what you consistently demand, not what you occasionally demand. And it creates a very miserable home if you're not consistent. Because if you're not consistent, the children don't know what to expect. And one day you, they get by with it, the next day they don't. And on the day when they don't and you start making demands, then you appear unreasonable to them. They think of you as unreasonable. In fact, they think you're having an emotional spell. They think that for some reason you've been ticked off. And probably that's the case. Probably you were provoked somehow to your sternness on this particular day. Maybe you're a little bit angry. Maybe you had a fuss with your wife. Maybe things didn't go right at work. Maybe you had a headache. Maybe you're impatient. Whatever. On this particular day, suddenly your demands are higher. You're inconsistent. And so you start demanding something in a strong and a powerful way, and the kids are thinking, what's wrong with him? Instead of thinking he's enforcing the rule of law, they're thinking he doesn't know what the rule of law is. And so it's very important that you decide what the rule of law is, demand that rule of law, and be consistent with it. And then on those days when they, they get away with it, you're teaching them, after you've made the demands the former day, and today you let them get by with it, Today you're lenient. You're teaching them that there is no rule of law. You're teaching them that punishment is not certain, it's not sure, and it's not just. You're teaching them that the wages of sin is not necessarily death. You're teaching them that what a man sows or what a child sows, he doesn't necessarily reap. You're teaching them that authority, like God's authority, vacillates. You see, you become a model, a representative of God's authority, God's rule, of the rule of law. And your consistency state something to them about the consistency of the rule of law about God. So it's absolutely necessary that you be consistent. Okay? Secondly, parents can, thirdly, parents can create disobedience in their children by rewarding disobedience. That is, if you tell a child, you can't go until you finish the dishes, and they, they play around, play around, play around, and then don't finish the dishes, and you let them go, then you've rewarded their disobedience. Or if you tell a child, uh, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. And they do it again and you say, okay, what did I tell you? Didn't I tell you I was going to spank you? I'm, uh, if, I'm, this is your last chance. Now you do what I told you to. And then the kid gets another chance. You just rewarded them for disobedience. 
And then they go out and they disobey again. You say, now, I am not going to tell you again. Of course, you are. You're going to tell them a couple more times. You're a liar. You're rewarding their disobedience. And then by parents scoffing at authority over them, or by a mother disobeying the father, or the father saying to the child, don't tell your mother. See? And by creating a, by justifying disobedience within the family or outside the family concerning job, work, ministry, the church, the law, when children see that the parents are not obedient to the rule of law, then they're instilling disobedience to law and authority in the children. And then by being careless with your commands, you need to decide what level of obedience you want and never demand more than that. I saw a mother one time holding up a little child about a year old saying, no, 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 no. Now, what she was doing was desensitizing the child to no. She was teaching the child that no doesn't mean no. No means sing-songy. No means we're having fun. And I see mothers like in a shopping place say to the children, no, no, don't do that, no, no. All just no, 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 all the time. And every other word is no. And can I go? No. Well, I want to go. I want to go. Okay. Uh, can I, can I, can I, can I have that to eat? No, not now, not now. Please let me have it to eat. No, 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 not now, not now. But I want it right now. I'm hungry right now. Well, okay, you can have a little bit right now. What are you teaching? Are you teaching that no is no? No, you're teaching that no is, wait a while, wait a while, wait a while. You're teaching, no means, no, ask me again, ask me again, ask me again, ask me again. Okay, now you can have it. You just totally destroyed the word no. You don't have, you don't have one in your vocabulary. I would suggest that you create a word now that means no. Don't use that word. You've destroyed it. And find some word, like in Russian, what is it? Uh, <laughs> Try a word like that, yet. And only start using it when you mean no all the time, forever, without exception. Or uh, what's the word in Spanish for no? Huh? No. Nada. Nada. Whatever. Find you find your word for no, and start using it. And let the when you use it, a kid ought to go and know that that means no. That means. Mm-mm. Always. Now, you could retrain one, and it'd be easiest to have a new word for it. And when you use that word, always stick with it. Even if you realize that you used it wrongly, and you, you really wanted them to go ahead, but you've gone overboard now, and you said, then you've got to stick with it. When you say, no, you can't eat now, and then you realize that really it's hungry time, then you can't let them eat now. Especially if they're asking deep. Especially if they're begging deep. You're going to have to say, no, not now. It'll be a half hour before we eat. See? See the clock right here? Half hour. And then when a half hour's up, you let them eat. Uh, if you say, no, you can't go, and then you realize that your wife had already said, yeah, they ought to be going, then you should say, well, uh, mama said yes. I didn't know she said yes. And so you can go. And let them know that there's a firm reason why you changed your mind 
that they didn't talk you into it, they didn't beg you into it, that it was a bad judgment on your part or you called the shot wrong. Never back up unless you have a justification for doing so. Now, I spanked one of my kids one time when he wasn't guilty for something. And sometimes I've jumped to conclusions. Now, when you do that, there's nothing wrong with backing up and saying I was wrong. You know, I made, a, I made a mistake there. They can understand that. But you should never give the impression that they have some sway or control through emotional manipulation or begging or whining to change your no into a yes. So be careful. Think about it before you say no. Decide if you're willing to pay the price to go through with this. If you're not, then say something else like, I don't think so, or not now, or maybe later, or I'll think about it. Anything, but don't say no until you mean no. It's very important if you're going to maintain your children's obedience. Okay, and uh, we've covered all of them then. That's uh, disobedient to parents. So those are the greatest sins of youth. The problem with the sins of youth is they become the sins of adults. And our children are often just a reflection of us. And what's difficult is we are trying to mold them into an image different from our own hands. And that's pretty difficult. See, when you're molding something with your own hands, it's pretty difficult to create an image different from your hands pretty difficult to leave a different fingerprint on it so our first responsibility should be to conform ourselves to the image of christ Amen. and then the children will follow father we thank you now for your word and we thank you for this message to our hearts god we pray you'll help us to be better parents pray you cause the children to be obedient and god there'll be good examples and good testimonies that they grow up to walk in honesty and in truth we ask in jesus name amen you've been listening to michael pearl teach the word of god this is a production of No Greater Joy Ministries Incorporated, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Write to us at No Greater Joy, 1000 Pearl Road, Pleasantville, Tennessee, 37033, or visit us online at nogreaterjoy.org.